You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Let's go. Big Boy Caprice, <laughs> Breathless Mahoney, Flat Top, The DA, Prune Face, Mumbles, Lips Manless, and The Blank are out to get the greatest detective of all time. I'm rubbing him out. I want him dead. Nobody touches Tracy but me. Tracy. 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 You mind if I call you Dick? I was beginning to wonder what a girl had to do to get arrested. Wearing that dress is a step in the right direction. For a tough guy, you do a lot of pansy things. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jared Case. 30 seconds, no more dick. 30 seconds, no more dick. Also with us this week is wow. Mr. Frank Santo Padre. Thank you. I like the way you say that name on your first attempt, Mike. Nicely done. Took Gilbert eight weeks. This week we were discussing Dick Tracy, the 1990 film directed by Warren Beatty, who also stars as the titular square-jawed detective who goes against mobster Big Boy Caprice, played by Al Pacino. While vacillating between the love of a good woman, Tess Trueheart, played by Glenn Headley, and the femme fatale, Breathless Mahoney, played by Madonna. Released almost a year to the day after Tim Burton's Batman, there are a lot of parallels between the two films, and I'm sure we'll be exploring those as well as the film's maybe one or two twists as we go along. So if you don't want anything ruined for you, go ahead, turn off the podcast, go watch Dick Tracy. We will be here when you get back. So Jared, when was the first time you saw Dick Tracy and what did you think? I was all in on Dick Tracy from the first night it was released. Uh, like you said, it was uh, Batman was released in 1989 and I had the fortune of staying through a show of see no evil, hear no evil. Uh, the film with, uh, Richard Pryor and Gene oh, Wilder. Did you say you had the good fortune of sitting through that? Only because be, because that led to that Thursday night screening of Batman. As an 18-year-old, I was very excited to see Batman uh, and Tim Burton. And the score in the, the trailer was fantastic for that. So I was trying to recapture that myself with uh, 1990 when Dick Tracy was coming out. There was so much promotion ahead of time. And uh, I was ready to go. It was before I started working at the movie theater uh, where I saw the film. So what they did was for the Thursday night screenings, when you bought a ticket for that, you actually got a T-shirt. So they had several different sizes of T-shirts, and that was your ticket. They stamped the name and address of the theater where you would be seeing the film, and you had to wear that T-shirt that night in order to get into the film. So I was there, 12.01, I think it said, on the day that it was released, watching Dick Tracy, and I loved it from that point on. How about you, Frank? I remember that T-shirt promotion. I don't think I saw it where you had to have the T-shirt with the ticket. Yes, I saw it in the theater in 1990, uh, somewhere out on Long Island, where my parents were living at the time. I I remember really admiring it. I I remember thinking, this doesn't all hold together. When I watched it recently, I thought the same thing. 
<laughs> but I, remem- I remember admiring the ambition of it, and, and certainly, as many people have already pointed out, the production design. You know, and the gimmick of, of, of working with a seven-color uh, seven palette, which uh, Beatty insisted that, that the production team and, and Vittorio Storaro do. I remember thinking, this is just beautiful to look at. And uh, and I, I love the, the the various elements of it. I still do. I wish I kind of wish it held together better. I didn't see this one until years and years later. Like I don't even know when I rewatched this thing yesterday. I don't know if that was a first time watch or if it was maybe a second or third, but just had kind of forgotten the first because I was working at a movie theater when this came out, and I remember doing a lot of aisle checks for it. So there were yeah. scenes that I had seen tons of times like the interrogation of mumbles i had seen that a bunch of times and i remembered certain parts of this movie like it was yesterday but seeing it all together i'm not sure and it might have actually been better that way just seeing like little moments of the movie because to your guys's point it doesn't necessarily all hang together that well but there are a lot of moments mm-hmm. in oh, the yeah. movie that definitely work well and I have to say the makeup and everything. I, I thought that the, the use of the grotesques from the Dick Tracy comic books and actually being able to turn a lot of them, a lot of them successfully, I would say, into living, breathing characters, I thought that that was just an amazing achievement of the day. So between that and the use of the color palette, I mean, this this movie just sang visually. I thought it was fantastic to look at. I think the makeup at. won an Oscar. I think it was nominated for seven Oscars. I think it won three, and I think one of them was for makeup. I mean, God, the look of Flat Top was just mm. gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, Bill Forsyth and Prune Face, too. I often wonder myself, having been so excited about it in the first place, whether or not that's colored uh, my opinion of the film down the years. But I've been very fascinated with Warren Beatty throughout the years, either because of that or I know I had seen Heaven Can Wait before that on, on television, but I had a chance to see him speak at the TCM Film Festival. He got interviewed by Alec Baldwin right before Reds, and he's a very fascinating figure. He's very particular, very quiet and guarded, and he will ensure that he's saying the right thing about the question that you're asking, verifying that you're asking the question he thinks you're asking so he can give the right question. Or, or mm-hmm. answer. But I think especially with this film, and and probably with Reds as well, he's very particular about the choices that he makes for the film. And he's very faithful within this, not only to uh, Goulding's comic strip, but also the gangster films of the 1930s and the films noir of the 1940s especially. And the way that he approaches not only the the look and feel of the film and the way he directs the production designer and makeup and um, the costumer to create these visions, but also with the narrative and a lot of the themes that are going on with the the characters within the story and how he updates them to the late 80s, early 90s. I think it's really interesting for that. Did a lot of people at this at this uh, TCM gathering ask Dick, Dick Tracy questions? The regular people weren't allowed to ask questions. <laughs> oh, I see. I thought there was a Q&A. Oh, no. there was. It was yeah. a Q&A between Alec Baldwin and... Uh, I see. I see. I'd be very uh, curious. I've never seen him really interviewed about Dick Tracy. I was curious. No, no, nor have I. And, yeah, I think that would be very interesting. Perhaps with the new film coming out, the rules don't apply. Maybe, oh, the Howard Hughes project, yeah. Yeah, he'll open it up a little bit more and allow for some questions. But based on what I've seen, probably not. 
it will all be just about that. One of the things that I like about him is he seems to be very loyal to people. When I was looking at like the production designers' credits and seeing him in Reds and seeing him working in other, well, I think all the way back into Shampoo and earlier for this guy, but obviously he stayed along with Beatty. But when you look at just the cast of who's in Dick Tracy, I mean, seeing Estelle Parsons and seeing, uh, was did I see Michael J. Pollard yeah, in here as Bonnie well? And Clyde. Yeah, so yeah. seeing all people all the way back to Bonnie and Clyde, I know that he had offered uh, a role to Gene Hackman, but Hackman's like, yeah, listen, after Reds, I don't really want to work with you again. <laughs> so. Yeah, the micromanaging. <laughs> I stayed with him. So, and, and, you know, I know that he and Dustin Hoffman are, are friends, you know, with, well, with Ishtar and everything. So seeing Hoffman in here, I mean, so many familiar faces and so many people that he had worked with before, but in front of the camera and behind the camera, it's kind of nice to know that he has that, that loyalty to people that he's worked with. But yeah, he's kind of, he's an interesting guy, interesting guy. And famous, uh, I mean, the Hackman story doesn't surprise me because he's fa- he's famous for micromanaging and uh, and do- and you know hun- dozens, if not hundreds, of takes, which I think happened on on uh, on Dick Tracy. We we had Lee Grant, uh, who of course won the Oscar for Shampoo. We had Lee Grant on the podcast that I do with Gilbert. She mentioned that she she almost walked off. She in fact she did. She walked off of Shampoo because Hal Ashby was directing the film, and Beatty kept telling her what to do. Oh, and she said, I'm here. I, she said, I'm here to take direction from the director. And he finally had to promise, in her words, to, be, to, to not keep giving her conflicting direction. That attention to detail and that obsessiveness definitely pays off with something, though, like with, like with this. I mean, there's not a wrong step as far as the look of the film. I mean, everything seems to be really thought out and everything seems to be in its place. It's a very well-directed film in terms of the look. I don't know if some of the acting, some of the performances necessarily come through. I mean, can we just come out and say it? What do you guys think of Madonna's performance in this? I think that limiting the number of lines she said to those particular ones was a good idea. There's one part when they have a little exchange, and I could almost hear somebody off screen go, and scene at the end of it. It just felt like, you know, we've done this a lot of times, and we've really rehearsed every single intonation of these different lines. It just, it felt very, I don't know, it felt very drama school to me. You want me. You're right, I do want you. In court, where you can tell the truth. You're lying. You want me the same way that I want you. You want me to take a risk? I want you to take a risk. I told you I'd protect you if you testify. Protect me? It's my job. I don't know about your job. I only know what I feel. If you can't tell me how you feel, Tracy, then I can't trust you. Wait a minute. What do you want me to admit? That I think about you? Okay, I admit it. Testify. You want my testimony? Tell me you want me. If you do that, I'll do anything you say. How bad do you want, big boy? It's up to you. Tell me you want me. Tell me you want it all. But tell me now. Just having, especially all the double entendres and everything, I thought worked well for her to just have very limited line readings. And and I will say that I've enjoyed some of her performances before. I really liked her in Who's That Girl? I liked her in Desperately Seeking Susan. It's the rare actress who actually seems to get worse as time goes on, and Madonna seems to be that actress. 
I think she is incredibly alluring in the film. And when she is intended to be alluring, she's dead on. And I think physically she inhabits the role and the way that those, yes. the costumes that she wears are cut and fashion. Gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. That it, it definitely shows off her body and, and whether or not, uh, Warren Beatty started dating Madonna before or during this film. He obviously had an eye for her form. I think it's those scenes where she intends, she's supposed to be more subtle, more real, more natural, which really fails. And I think that is what you guys are talking about when it doesn't quite hold together. It's, you know, obviously uh, Dick Tracy is attracted to this woman, but, he's supposed to be tempted to leave Tess Trueheart for her uh, for something beyond just these carnal opinions. So I think that's really where the performance lets the movie down. First of all, I want to say, uh, Mike, that my friend Andrew Smith is the, uh, is the screenwriter of uh, Who's That Girl? And I'm going to uh, tell him that he has one fan of that, <laughs> of that film. Bless your heart for liking that movie. I don't like Madonna in the film either, but I think the problems go, the, the, the storytelling problems go beyond Madonna. I think one of the reasons in watching it again recently, one of the ways I think it falls down is it's, it's, it's hard to follow the plot. And the you know the double crossing and and breathless is is is, is the blank and 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 then there's the love triangle with Tess and the, it's 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 a little bit all over the place. I I I, I thought the first time I thought I thought well, why is Madonna in this movie? And now <laughs> watching it again, I'm thinking well she's really she's really only in my opinion she's really only one problem among many, which is that I I just I think the narrative is 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 a bit of a mess. I mean to me. And, and interestingly, uh, doing a little research, I find that Beatty himself tried to uh, lobby the WGA for a writing credit on the film, which to me is telling. There were so many versions of the script, right. and to me, it bears the mark of of a lot of meddling or a lot of overwriting or a lot of on-set writing or on-set changes. Uh, so I don't want to knock Madonna too much. I, I don't. I, I also don't. I admire the Sondheim songs, but. It's a, it's also to me a very weird marriage between the Elfman score and the and the Sondheim music, which which sound like they're parts of two different movies. Yeah, really. I mean, and it feels like the movie just kind of stops every once in a while. And I know that's that's a little bit of a throwback to some of the older films, to some of the films noir and, and yeah. some of those films of that era. Like, you know, even watching like a Rafifi or whatever, where it's just like, okay, and now we're going to have our musical break. Right. But that's a musical break. It feels like there are several musical breaks in here. And it's wow. like, okay, are you a musical or are you not a musical? Kind of do one or the other, maybe. You know, I could I could take more songs, you know, if they if they wanted to pepper them through here and maybe have some more, you know, musical montages and everything. I think the montage scenes actually really work well. But when it comes to, you know, like, hey, now it's time for Mandy Patinkin and Madonna to sing a song. It's like, <laughs> but what a great well, song. It's part of what makes the movie so ambitious. And like I said, not not entirely successful, but it's so many, so many things are thrown at the canvas. You know, we've got Madonna. Okay, he was dating Madonna at the time. I think the relationship preceded the film. Uh, that's that's my understanding of it. So, well, we've got Madonna. Okay, so we'll have Madonna. And now we, we've got Stephen Sondheim. Okay, so we've got to serve Stephen, serve Stephen Sondheim. Okay, now we've got Danny Elfman. Uh, so we got to, we got, it, it's, it, there's, there's so much going on, and, and, and it's very busy. <laughs> it's a very busy movie. And I, I just, I'm not, like I said, I'm not sure everything gels, but you kind of admire that he's throwing everything but the kitchen sink in there. 
I've expressed on this show before that I have some problems with Danny Elfman's scores sometimes. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest problems is that a lot of them sound very, very similar. Sure. And with this coming out a year after Batman, I mean, they might as well have just taken the Batman score and, and put it on to Dick Tracy. I mean, there are so many times where I'm just like, this is the same music. Come on. I mean, I'm watching yesterday, and I was just like, "Why?" Because I wasn't paying attention during the the opening credits, and when the music started up, and it, I was just like, "Oh my God, Sony is really ripping off Danny Elfman!" And then I came to find out that it was Danny Elfman <laughs> ripping off Danny Elfman. Yeah. I was like, "This is crazy!" And I know they were trying to capture the Batman spirit and everything, sure. but they just went a little too far when it came to that. Well, score. he was the, he was the composer of the moment for those kind of action films. It, it was just kind of kind of nuts to to hear all those similarities and yeah it doesn't necessarily that style and, and especially i mean really it's the the orchestration i think was the biggest thing that struck me as similar it wasn't even necessarily the musical motifs as much as sure. the the use of the horns and the kind of kind of thing that he was doing and that doesn't necessarily play with those songs of Sondheim's. It's not like he's taking a lot of cues from the Sondheim songs no. and then mixing them into other things. It doesn't feel, yeah, it's a very uneasy marriage. Elfman is not the only composer that has fallen to this. I, I've been known to start sing, or humming Star Wars only to ease into Superman without knowing it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I've talked on the show, too, about Michael Kamen and just like, you know, I can walk through the room and and my wife will be watching something. I'll be like, I don't know what this movie is, but that's Michael Kamen doing the score. <laughs> well, I guess it's a question for composers as much as it is for actors. Do you when when you're putting the film together, you cast some actors for their face. You can do the same thing with a composer. You cast him because he does this kind of thing well. And I think in this case it was, hey, you did a really good job on Batman. I want you back for this. But I don't think there was nearly enough time between the two. The Elfman stuff makes you feel like you're watching a modern day super, you know, big studio, uh, big budget studio superhero film. And then when you see the Sondheim stuff and the old style 
Warner Brothers gangster movies montage, you feel like you're watching an older film. It has that effect of jarring you back and forth. And it's like, like I said, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of disparate elements that just don't seem to, to all hang together. And, and yet it's a, yet it's a fun ride. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, there are some moments to this that I really appreciate it. You know, like the, the opening murder. Yeah, I know it's kind of a throwback to the St. Valentine's Day massacre, but it works. And, uh, you know, the whole, like, writing Eat Lead Tracy with the machine yeah, gun yeah, right. and everything. I was like, yeah, this is this is a lot of fun. And then I will say that the death of Lips Manless is very fun as well. So, And that stuff, it's almost like the stuff without Tracy. It seems to, to play really well. I mean, it, Tracy is an interesting character because I've read a lot of the comics now doing research for this. And Tracy is uh, he's a great hard-boiled hero. Like, he really doesn't give a shit about very much at all other than catching bad guys. You know, he seems to be so driven – and he almost seems like, as as I was watching the film, I was getting uh, overtones of Brian De Palma's The Untouchables at every once in a while. And he feels kind of like, uh, he's like Elliot Ness, if Elliot Ness had, because Elliot Ness has the drive, but Elliot Ness also has that kind of truth, justice in the American way kind of thing. If he just had just the drive, that seems to be kind of Dick Tracy, like, damn all the consequences i will do whatever it takes because he's he's rather brutal which is one thing that i like about him too i mean he's like dirty harry in 1931 you know he, he doesn't care about anything else as long as the bad guys suffer yeah i mean for all the talk about jail and and bringing the villains to justice uh, everybody he arrests doesn't go to jail and everyone that goes down in cause of justice is killed violent as it is and the, the tommy gun sequence is also a little bit out of step with the with the with the the the, the tone of the movie it's suddenly he's just blowing people away in the street it's 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 like you oh okay that's a little jarring for a movie that's 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 kind of being sold as a as a, as a live action sunday comic strip and has a and has a kid character in there you know, I think that's what's uh, one of the things that's really interesting to me about the film is that whether it was simply me at 19 not knowing much about Dick Tracy or whether it's sort of America's opinion of superheroes as they were, especially like the DC superhero that has this iconography that, like you said, Mike, truth, justice in the American way, there are shades within this film it, Maybe only if you're looking for them, but you know, with the violence in the film and the sexuality and uh, the costumes, uh, again, as a 19-year-old, I was looking. You could see Madonna's nipple through this through this outfit, and it's rated PG. So, where is the balance between this upstanding hero worship and the, the grays uh, that the characters go through or the characters represent? I, I find that really interesting in as a viewer, you know, the, the hermeneutics of it, as you're reading it, what is the balance within the audience between one or the other? And I think for some people, it works a lot better than it does with other people. I wonder sometimes if what you, if the final product is, is a cobble, and I'll do a little bit more research on it because I'm really curious, but uh, there were so many versions of the script by so many people, and, it, and it, it also has a very interesting development history. It was, it was supposed to be directed by Richard Benjamin, as a smaller movie at one point, it was developed by John Landis. Spielberg had a sniff at it. They were going to make it with Clint Eastwood. Jim Cash and Jack Epps, who got the final uh, screenplay credit, wrote a very, very early script before Beatty was attached. 
And then Bo Goldman, uh, the Melvin and Howard writer, came on and, and, and did a draft. And as I said, now you've got Beatty at the, at, the, uh, at the end of the process lobbying the WGA for a credit, for a screen credit. To me, I, I, I think, I suspect that there's a lot of different pieces taken from a lot of different scripts. Well, I read most of all three drafts of the Cash and Epps scripts. Oh, you did? Yeah. Probably didn't get your – there was a Bo Goldman rewrite, and I don't know if that's uh, available. Did not find the Bo Goldman rewrite, but I will have to say that reading those original scripts from 1983, these were dated. Mm-hmm. I was surprised. I was so surprised because we all know how you know projects and development can just change Absolutely. You know, like you can go from being in a submarine to being in outer space. You know, that's (laughs) how much the rewrites will do to you, right? It is so close to what was written in 1983. It was was almost spooky. I mean, I mean, it had the card scene at the beginning. It had, I mean, all the way to the very end of it, all the way, you know, like it was always the blank was going to be Breathless Mahoney. It was always going to be Chess Drew Hart getting kidnapped. As I'd read, they'd written a campier draft. An earlier draft was much campier. These three that I read, which were all pretty much like within three months of each other when it comes to the rewrites, they were all right there on the screen. It was really kind of crazy. So odd. The only real difference that I saw was that Tess isn't at the very end of the film. Like when we see she's not on the big rotating gear at the end of the, the action sequence. Like she's not taken by Big Boy into the sewers. He goes alone. That's it. That's that's really the biggest difference between the two films. I mean, I wonder why the director was trying to get himself a screen credit. I can see a lot of dialogue polishing going on, but yeah, really, that's about it. I mean, there was a little bit more in the finished film when it came to the setup of Tracy with the Dick Van Dyke character. Uh But really, it was very superfluous, like the whole idea of like really having to telegraph to the audience, like, okay, we have set Dick up. Now he's he's he, he's knocked out, and now we're going to slam the door and scream out this line of dialogue and everything, so the two guys in the lobby can hear us, and then really put the finger on to Tracy. That's not there, but really, it's it, it didn't need to be. So, yeah, it was interesting just how similar that they were. Unless I was reading completely bogus stuff, but they, if, um, but people would have had to go into a lot of effort to make these <laughs> different screenplays. And there's even one version that I had where when they reveal that it's Breathless Mahoney at the blank, <laughs> it said uh, this this cannot be revealed at this time. Like it was just one page of the screenplay. I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. Well, uh, I could be mistaken, but it, 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 it looks from what I've read and what I've heard, uh, the, the, I think there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen. No, I read the exact same thing. And that's why I was just so surprised. And I was so surprised that something could go from 1983 to 1990 and not be more mucked around with. Right, I mean, right. because we know, you know, just look at the screenplay for Prometheus just a few, like a year before it goes, uh, starts shooting. So many changes take place. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just nuts. Or even in the editing process. And we've heard that there's what, what is it that Beatty says? 135 minute or 125 minute version of Dick Tracy. And reading the screenplay, I'm like, there's no room for it. There's, there's nothing you 
could add. There's mm-hmm. there's nothing, you know. And at first, I was thinking, well, maybe it's the montage. Like that's actually a real, you know, series of scenes, and we actually get to see Dick Tracy cleaning up the city at one point. But no, it actually says montage, and <laughs> it gives you the whole buildup of all the crime being closed down. So it's like, yeah, what what is this? So I mean, maybe like I said, maybe these screenplays are 100% bogus because stranger things have happened and with Beatty saying that there's a longer version of the film i'm just like okay well that supports it and yes it supports it too that you can never go in front of the camera without having you know like just get the guy in to polish the dialogue just to get this guy in here to tweak the action so yeah it's crazy that something that that this would actually happen so i'm hoping somebody can kind of shed some light on this i was really hoping that floyd mutrix could shed some light on this but that's a whole other story <laughs> did you have uh, did you have floyd on your show Oh man! Oh man! Oh man! All right. Well, I'll tell the Floyd story. So, <laughs> am I, I'm, do I? I'm, I'm remembering that right, right? Yeah, yeah. I, well, we I've, spoke I've about had, it. Yes. When you yes, first asked I've, me to do this, his name came up, and you told me. I'm a fan of American Hot Wax, by the way. If I ever talk to him again, I'll be sure to tell okay. him that, that <laughs> you are. So, I uh, talked to him forever ago. We had him on the. Uh, well, speaking of Gilbert Godfrey, we had him on the Adventures in, of Ford Fairlane. There you go. Episode. Great, great interview. When I got done talking with him, he said, "You got to ask me about Dick Tracy." I was doing Dick Tracy at this around the same time. I was doing a series of. Dick Tracy stories. The first one was uh, uh, was Halloween night, and uh, the Nazis were trying to sabotage the Manhattan Project under Soldier Field. It was Halloween night, 1938. Orson Welles had broadcast War of the Worlds. The Martians had landed, and uh, all the Dick Tracy characters had mingled in with them. This sounded like a job for Dick Tracy. So I was working on that, which was kind of a cartoon detective, although, yeah, it was a cartoon detective. I was in the middle of, I think I just directed American Hot Wax. Dick Tracy was going to be a series of movies. Actually, was going to do Dick Tracy first with Harrison Ford, but he ended up doing uh, The Picture with George. So, I mean, you know, Star Wars. Uh, and uh, and that was going to do a series of, uh, I was going to do them all with Jimmy. Jimmy and I had just done Freebie and the Bean, and we were, and, you know, Jimmy uh, disappeared for a while. So, and then I was sort of, then, um, well, it ended up with Warren, but that was 10 years later. Um, some things do have two parts or one part or more than one part. Dick Tracy had a, definitely had a sequel. Warren did a completely different movie than the script, that was the script that I wrote. I was, I was the original director. I, I left it after a couple of years, but there was, there was more than one Dick Tracy adventure and there was more than one Ford Fairlane adventure. I've got so many stories to tell about Dick Tracy. And I'm like, okay, great. Yeah, well, I'll set up an episode. We'll do a Dick Tracy episode. And then I talked to him a few, probably like a year or so later, about um, Tulane Blacktop. And when I was done with that, he's like, you got to talk to me about Dick Tracy. I got so many stories. I'm like, okay, okay, yeah, definitely, definitely. So then I finally reached out to him probably about six weeks ago. And I called him up and I was like, hey, Floyd, we talked a couple times. Of course, he doesn't know who the hell I am, right? You know, I'm just uh-huh. a punk kid from, from Detroit calling him up so so i end up talking to his son who's his assistant they're working on shows you know they're still doing the million dollar quartet they've got other stuff coming out 
So I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm talking to his son, Ashley, you know, I'm doing the show. He's like, no problem. Call my dad on Saturday. So I call him on Saturday, no answer. So then I get a text from Ashley. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. My dad's busy. You know, try him again on Tuesday. So I try again, still doesn't work out. Then I get another text. He says, hey, my dad talked to Warren and he needs to make sure that it's okay to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, all right. <laughs> oh, Mark, there go the Dick Tracy stories. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. So then I've been texting like once a week for the last four weeks going, hey, Ashley, uh, any word from your dad about uh, Dick Tracy? And now it's like he was so good about responding to my texts and calls and everything. You'd be like right on it. And now it's like nothing crickets. He's gone underground. Warren Beatty gag order. All right. So no Floyd Muck tricks on this show. I'm I'm very sad to say because he had stories. He was going to tell me some stories. Maybe one day. Yeah, yeah, we can hope. So yeah, if I ever do that American Hot Wax episode, I'll yeah, that's hopefully a fun get on the show. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, he's done a lot of great stuff, a lot of varied stuff yeah. too. He's kind of the the crown prince of rock and roll. Well, I'd love to talk to him myself sometime. So what'd you guys think of Al Pacino as Big Boy Caprice? It was part of his sort of little comeback. He had sort of gone away from making films except for Revolution back in 85 and he started making his way back with uh, Sea of Love in 88, 89. So this was not long after that. And I think, as you said, much of the non-Tracy stuff really moves. And I think Pacino is feeling his oats as Big Boy. He's just perfectly cast. He got an Oscar nomination for it. So, Did he? Uh, that's wild. Yeah. I didn't know that. I think being away from Hollywood for a while had done him a lot of good. And the, the roles he was choosing as he was coming back were completely different from the stuff he was doing in the 70s and the early 80s. And this uh, fit his big personality and his acting style really well. Yeah, I think it's one of the more fun things in the movie. I think he, uh, I think he, uh, he was having a good time. I read somewhere that he borrowed parts of the character from a Bertolt Brecht story. Can you imagine? I have to double check that. But I, I look at it and I think to myself, you know, Al Pacino is funny and I can't think of him in too many comedies. When you think of Al Pacino, you don't think of comedy. No, definitely after you've seen Jack and Jill. <laughs> well, yeah, but that was, that was a small part. But I mean, in his heyday, there's a movie he made called Author, Author, an Arthur right. Hiller yeah. movie. That was the only other um, thing I could think of. Yeah, that's a lot of fun, but, but you, you, you go back and you think, when, when was this guy ever funny? And boy, he's, he's, just, uh, he's just a marvel in that role. Yeah, no, he is terrific. And I, I, he brings such physicality to the role. Because I remember reading that Big Boy is kind of, he's, he's almost simian. He's almost like a big gorilla, especially the way that he's you know, cracking the walnuts with his hands. And right, stuff. Right. He's supposed to, have, supposed to have really big hands and big arms. And there are times where you see Pacino, the, the full man Pacino, and just to see the way that he carries his body and the way that that kind of outfit looks on him so he just looks he, he just looks misshapen and everything and i was like okay that that actually kind of works and I, I i can see a lot of shades of what we're gonna see with like later crazy pacino the whole screaming and everything i'm just getting warmed up but it works as big boy i think i i, I thought that he was kind of perfect in that role for that he's a very big actor who makes a lot of big choices and so that that part that part is just perfectly suited to, uh, uh, for him and by the way a shout out to Milena Cannonero and those great costumes 
in, oh, yeah. in that film. And another wonderful part of the production design. I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up about him seeming Simeon and that the physicality of that character really speaks to the audience in the way that uh, they see him as, as threatening and violent and sort of um, animal-like. But it's, it also recalls uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And if you bring in that backstory about how he was shut away and taken away from uh, society – it almost brings a, sort of a pathos to the character as well. So we, we have an idea of how he became this way and what he's seeking to prove by being the, the boss of the city. It's uh, an early version of his looking for Richard. It's like he's doing Richard <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Third. Yeah, that too. That too. But it's a tour de force. I mean, it, you, you, watching it again, he's, he's, unfortunately, he's so much more memorable than Beatty. And of course, that's the old, you know, the villain, you know, Nicholson stealing the movie from from Keaton. I mean, the old, the old, the villain has always got the showier role, but but he's what you remember. Um, and I, I guess because Beatty's playing the the stiff jawed, straight laced character, it's Pacino's movie if it's anybody's movie. Yeah, but we can talk about Beatty as well. I mean, he is, as you say, playing the the character we see on the comic book page as yeah. Square jaw, angular jaw, right? But I, I think that what he does with the part, and he certainly gives himself as much chance as he can to have a little bit uh, within the shadows. But I think it's, I think his performance is subtle in that he gives himself with the character a chance to be tempted. So he is tempted by not only the the kid, he's tempted by the kid, Charlie Corsmo, who is mm-hmm. some sort of big politician or in politics now. Is uh, he? Yeah. I, I know that. He's in one of my favorite movies that nobody saw called Men Don't Leave. Oh, sure. Jessica Lange movie Jessica with Lang Joan, and Cusack. Joan Cusack. Right? Yeah, if you can find it. They're, uh, written and directed by the guy that made Risky Business, Paul Brickman. I think she got a nomination for that, too, Jessica Lange. Talk about weird synchronicities because that movie just came up when in my conversation with Owen Gleiberman because he was a huge fan of that film. Yeah, so, it's like nobody talks about it, and then I hear about it twice and within two weeks. I don't think it's even available. I can't even find the damn thing. Uh, yes, yeah, really, really an unsung film of the period. Yeah, I, I remember when it was on VHS, and it was at the movie theater where I was working. I remember specifically because, well, it had a great, great closing credit song, so it was wonderful to clean the theater to that song. And the other thing was people would butcher the, the name when they would come up and order tickets. So I remember one woman ordering or asking for tickets for uh, Men Don't Leave Me, Please. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, pe- people talk about uh, risky business a lot, but that's Paul Brickman's other movie. And it's 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 very good. I think Men Don't Leave Me Please is the Henny Youngman film. There you go. Charlie, I, you, we, I work at The View. Uh, um, I don't talk about it too much on the podcast, but I had uh, we had uh, Chris O'Donnell on the show. And he uh, he was the other son in Men Don't Leave. And I said, boy, I, I tell you, I, I got to really bring up Men Don't Leave. I love that film and people don't talk about it. And he said, oh, thank you for saying that. He said, I'm so proud of it. No, no one ever brings it up. It's due for a resurgence. The cinema of Charlie Cosmo. Sounds like a Dryden series already to, to go. I didn't know he left the business. That's interesting. Yeah, so he's actually uh, a lawyer now. He got a degree in physics from MIT. Oh, how about that? Didn't know. And he's worked for the EPA and for the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. 
Wow. Icy. Hmm. Interesting turn of events. It's funny that of all the things that I could complain about, Dick Tracy, having Charlie Cosmo as the kid, having the kid character, not the complaint. You know, that that's like the, the thing that you complain about when you go to see a Shane Black movie, right? Like, oh, it'd be good if there wasn't a kid in here. But no, it, it works so well in Dick Tracy. And it works, I guess it works well because it was part of the original lore of the, of the comic strip and everything. Right. But it works really well in here. The character is, is really dynamic. Charlie Cosmo plays him very, very well. I like the tension that goes on between him and Tess Trueheart and him and Tracy. I'm glad that once he kind of gets his, his act together, that he isn't constantly like, Oh, I'm just going to run away again. Like I was really afraid at one point when he, uh, Dick Tracy is kidnapped and, uh, big boys offer him, offering him money to, uh, to, leave him alone and the kid is outside watching i thought for sure like okay he's gonna offer him all this money tracy's gonna say yes and the kid's gonna like leave at that point and then you know tracy will redeem himself and the kid won't know and yada 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 the thing we've seen a thousand times right but no thank god that didn't happen i was so (laughs) thankful that 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 it went on and that he stayed there and that he rescued tracy and everything played out so much better than it would had this been handled in a different film i don't know the the comic strip very well i don't know i don't i know a little bit about chester gould's comic mostly what i remember about dick tracy was an animated series the tv series when i was a kid did that uh, dynamic exist in the strip that that he and tess were uh, you know that that kind of pull between his his professional life and his family life and and should they adopt this kid is that the role that the kid plays in the strip there was a little bit of that yeah at one point though Uh, Tess decided to marry somebody else mm-hmm. who ended up being a heel. And then Dick Tracy ended up marrying somebody else. He actually married a woman from the moon. But eventually they did get together and yeah, the kid was there the whole time. And you actually got to see the kid grow up throughout the entire. I comic didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. They had a really good continuity when it came to these characters and their growth and everything. So it was a real, you know, like they didn't do the typical comic book thing of kind of rebooting like, oh, in this timeline, this happens in this timeline, this happens. No, you actually got to see the entire thing from 1931 on. There was a continuity there between all these different stories. I'm learning so much in this podcast. (laughs) I've learned that Dick Tracy married a, an extraterrestrial and that Charlie Cosmo works for the Republican Party. And I'm only I disillusioned think... about one of those things. Yeah, and we've got a great interview coming up in a little bit with Garen G. Roberts, who wrote a whole book about Dick Tracy. And yeah, he's, he's got some great insights on all this. I think it's uh, exactly what you're saying about the, how the kid works and the scene that you're talking about where uh, Tracy is being tempted by Big Boy to be on the take. Uh, become one of the the informers tracy in the film is not tempted by physical things uh he's tempted by emotion both by breathless and his feelings for her but also by the kid because the what the movie sets up is that the kid is supposed to go to the orphanage and tracy says several times it's the law it's what i have to do but within the film he is breaking his own code because of his feeling for the kids 
whether it's uh, because he saw the squalor that he was living in or uh, he can see himself in uh, the kid as a boy. And certainly the, the boy capitulate or the kid capitulates by naming himself after Tracy. They can see something in each other. But there's a, a slight chink in his moral armor, as it were, to have both of these things coming just at the point where he's planning on settling down with Tess and uh, the attempts that he makes to uh, propose to Tess are always interrupted. But it's the emotion of the thing that that tempts him away from that uh, very stark and exact role he has taken on before, both in the history of the film as well as in the comics that he needs to follow the letter of the law and not do anything beyond that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he still can't necessarily ask Tess to marry him. He just <laughs> throws the ring at her basically. Yeah. <laughs> and jets hey, take off. this right catch. Yeah. Good luck with that. So I, I really quick, I wanted to ask you guys about the rogues gallery. We talked a little bit about William Forsyth as uh, a flat yeah. top. Yeah. I know the other big one was uh, Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles. What did you guys think of his performance in that? Loosely based on Robert Evans, supposedly. Really? Yeah. Yeah, look, Google it. <laughs> I can sort of see it now. <laughs> if you listen, to, if you listen, especially recent, uh, in the last 25 years, interviews with Robert Evans, we're trying to get him for our podcast, because I know he's just a great storyteller. But 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 he and he and Hoffman had a you know a long love hate French relationship, and I read in more than one place that that was a it was like a a, a a sort of a an homage, if you will, which is being kind. Yeah. And as I told you at the beginning of the call, uh, that Gilbert also auditioned. But see, he tells a funny story on our show about his agent saying it's it's between you and one other guy. I think you may get it. <laughs> the other guy turns out to be Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> Gilbert's thinking, well, what chance did I really have? Let's see, Gilbert Gottfried or Dustin Hoffman? Which way do we go? I can see Gilbert fitting into the rogues gallery at some point. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> I don't know if Mumbles would have been the one, though. Secondary you know? rogues gallery at best. Well, he could have at least been there with, like, Little Face and some of these guys. You I know, suppose. The yeah. I like uh, – what the hell is the actor's name? Is it James Tolkien? Not James Tolkien. He's sure. the principal yeah. in Back to the Future. The guy yeah. That yeah, the, no, that's him. Yeah, he's in there. He's in there, yeah. but he's not, a, he's not a rogue. It's the guy that plays Itchy. Oh, okay. Uh, I like – Oh, that's the guy from uh, Red Heat. Yeah, he is unrecognizable as Itchy because yeah. I kept looking at him and I'm like, really? That's that guy? I can't really place that. You know? But well, his, his, na- his nose was so completely different than I normally see it. Yeah. I can't think of the guy that played Itchy, but he was fun. And, um, oh, God, for some reason, actors' names are jumping out of my head today. Uh, there's a veteran character actor who played uh, Bruneface. It's R.G. Armstrong. R.G. Armstrong. R.G. Armstrong. Also fun. Oh, yeah, and he's got such a great voice. I mean, his 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 voice, of course, it comes through, but it just transforms his whole character. He's so great in that. It's one of the... Yeah, that's it's one of the most enjoyable aspects of the movie is the rogues gallery. Sitting right across the table from Henry Silva. Yeah, right, Henry right. Silva, very underused, I think. Influence, I think, Henry Silva played. He's still right. around. Yeah, oh yeah, Henry Silva will do your show for a couple thousand Yeah, dollars. he was in a Rat Pack, for Christ's sake. And may I say Dick Van Dyke, uh, we had on the show from Dick, from Dick Tracy, which was a, a joy. I gotta say, I was laughing when Big Boy is there with all the different 
you know, criminal families. Because, of course, I'm thinking of Michael Corleone. I'm thinking of, of Don, Don Corleone and the, the heads of the five families and everything. And then when James Caan ends up being one of the other criminals, I was like, oh, that's kind of a nice little nod yeah. there. Yeah, that was yeah, fun. Exactly. The James Caan looking exactly like James Caan. There was no prosthetics. Right, right. Yeah, no prosthetics for him. But just fun to see all those actors. I mean, it exists. It's one of those movies that, that's kind of a time capsule to see these great uh, Hollywood, uh, well, not only Hollywood stars of the era, but the character actors, but guys like Charles Durning and, and, and Michael oh. J. Paul, Pollard and Paul Servino. Kathy Bates. And Seymour C- Cassell and who? Kathy Bates. And Kathy Bates and, yeah, all of them. And, and Estelle Parsons, you mentioned. And so it's one of those movies where you, you, you get to see it, – it, it's kind of a it's, – it's a fun who's who. And my favorite still has to be – and it was a non-speaking role, but it goes back so far in referencing film noir – is actually Mike Mazurki, who is the guy – That's right, Mike Mazurki. In the lobby of the hotel – when uh, Tracy's being uh, set up. And for those who don't, might not remember the name, Mike Mazurki was in Farewell, My Lovely, saying, cute as lace pants. Or you might have seen him in uh, Shanghai Gesture, uh, talking to Victor Mature, was it? He's like, you like each any new year. And he played Split Face in uh, one of the Dick Tracy films. Right, yeah, yeah, he he was in the original Dick Tracy films. Right, he's in everything. Well, that's a nice nod, too, that they went back and they found an actor who had been in one of the early Tracy films. We're going to take a break and play some interviews. The first is with Garen G. Roberts, author of Dick Tracy and American Culture, Morality, Mythology, Text, and Context. Also, we'll hear from Tess Trueheart herself, Glenn Headley, and we'll have Mr. Dan Campling after these brief messages. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. Hey, Projection Booth listeners, I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor, and we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. <laughs> Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. 
That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshock.com slash culturecast. Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room Cast. I am Albert Weltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We We talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia... We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have a huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA, we've got stuff on like adaptations, we've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us and good night. All right. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know.
It's messed up, right? My name is Garen G. Roberts. I, I, I'm sure you know how, to, how it's spelled. I currently uh, am a freelance writer and, and doing all kinds of stuff in northern Wisconsin, but for 34 years I was a university professor, university and college professor. I'm uh, 57 years old now. I started when I was, oh, goodness, 21, 22, something like that. Looking at some of the books that you've written, you seem to be kind of a specialist when it comes to older, pulpier materials. Is that a pretty fair assessment? That's uh, one of my emphases, yes. As an undergraduate, I went to school at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater and earned a, a Bachelor of Business Administration degree in marketing. My whole goal coming out of the, the very beautiful but very isolated Northwoods of Wisconsin was to get into the field of publishing. And uh, teaching was never my, my primary goal. I turned out to be an absolute blessing and one of the best things that ever happened to me. But I watched what my parents went through as high school and grade school teachers, and I said, no way do I want to go through that. They, they, they loved their students. They were fantastic, award-winning teachers, and their students still come to them to this day. And my dad's 88, my mom's 82, and, and they still remember very fondly. But I, I remember some – it was a difficult profession then, and it is now, especially for a dedicated person. But uh, I got my bachelor's degree uh, in marketing, thinking that would get me into publishing. I had the chance to go to graduate school. I went to uh, Bowling Green State University in uh, northwest Ohio, just south of Toledo. At that time, they had a, it was some of the golden years of the very, very famous Department of Popular Culture. It was the World Center for Popular Culture Studies, championed by a very wonderful man, a man by the name of Ray Brown. And I got my master's and doctorate there, uh, doctorate in American Culture Studies with emphases in sociology, history, and English. And I, I first started teaching there in 81, and I stopped regularly teaching about a year ago, but I probably may go back to it. So I taught at Michigan State, and I taught in Northwestern Michigan College. I taught at Bowling Green. I taught in Minnesota at Mankato State University. So that was those were good years. Uh, now, regarding the, the Pulp Fiction stuff, that's one of many things I do, but I've been fortunate to be involved with a range of publishers um, collecting uh, one of my very favorite periods of time, uh, 1930s popular literature and art, um, why I like that period, of course, there's a lot of reasons why it was, by many people's uh, standard, it was the golden age for the popular media. Film, radio, comic strips, popular fiction, all that kind of thing. And it was also the period when my parents were little kids, so I had stories and memories of what they've told me through the years. And, of course, Dick Tracy was a big part of the 1930s. The Pulp Fiction stuff uh, I do every year. Got a couple of new books out that are due out. I'll have like seven different books out this year. Not that I've written them, but I've either edited them or contributed to them. One or two will be released down at Ohio State here in, uh, in a couple of weeks down at Columbus. We've got uh, the big pulp fest we have every year. 2013, I was granted the uh, and given the Munzney Award for that year's best scholarship in pulp fiction. So that meant a lot to me because that was something I'd been involved in for many years. But I've done a lot with science fiction. My most successful book is the Prentice Hall Anthology of Science Fiction and Fantasy. That book came out about 15 years ago. It's, it's like in its 12th printing now. And uh, it still turns a profit for the publisher and a little bit for me. Mostly for, the, mostly for the publisher. That's how that business works. Tell me about your first exposure to Dick Tracy. Was he a comic strip that you would, you would read when you were young? Yeah, up in, up in northern Wisconsin. I heard stories from my dad back as uh, you know, a young kid in the 60s. 
why he related all kinds of stories about the big little books he'd had as a kid. Big little books were a Wisconsin product that started in 1932 out of Racine, Wisconsin, just south out of Milwaukee, Whitman Publishing. And ironically, of course, the, the very first uh, big little book was The Adventures of Dick Tracy. But uh, my dad uh, told me a lot of stories about that era. I collected big little books as a kid. And I started to buy, even though it was kind of expensive on my quarter-a-week allowance, uh, the Sunday Chicago Tribune, just to get the Sunday page. Uh, the first page of that section, had just like it had been at the New York Times for 46 years, was uh, the full-color Sunday of Chester Gould's Dick Tracy. So that's where I really started reading that stuff, and then I started collecting the books and ultimately corresponded with Mr. Gould at, the, uh, at his office in the Chicago Tribune Tower right downtown Chicago. And he and I were, were friends until his death in 1985, and he actually helped me with my uh, my doctoral dissertation, which was, of all things, on Dick Tracy. When it came to that, what was kind of your approach? What was your um, do you, do you have an argument when it comes to your uh, thesis, or what was the focus of that? It was a funny thing about that book, you know. Sometimes, and I've been writing for many years, and I really believe this. Sometimes, what happens with writing, some of the very most rewarding, the success can be measured on several levels, but the most rewarding kind of writing is the kind where you start out with an idea and something organic happens, something bigger than you ever planned came out of the writing. And what happened with that dissertation and ultimately award-winning uh, books, it uh, also received the nomination from the Mystery Writers of America. It was a finalist where I was hauled to New York City and all that kind of thing. Kind of a big deal. But the big theme that came out of that book is found in its title, uh, Dick Tracy in American Culture, uh, Morality and Mythology, Text and Context. And the big thesis that comes out of it is that Dick Tracy was, among other things, a tremendous purveyor of a morality in the 1930s that to this day is, still has tremendous traction and relevance. Uh, morality of, you know, and of course, morality in a big philosophical way can take a variety of forms, but but it's the kind of morality that was very traditional, uh, very simple at its, its roots of, of good guys uh, succeeding over bad guys and all that sort of thing. So that became a, a major thesis that sort of emerged out of this chronicling of, of Chester Gould's brainchild that went on until his, till after his death is still around today. That's just fun stuff, too. It's, you know, for lack of a technical term, it's fun stuff. It's, it's good material. I don't think there's a more important comic strip in the history of uh, world newspaper comics. There have been a few through the years that have sold better, not very many, but you can think of comic strips like Charles Schultz's Peanuts. Sometimes Blondie did really well back in the 40s and 50s, and there have been a few others since then that do really well. But but Dick Tracy is is, uh, is the king of the comic strips. And, of course, I'm a little biased, but the circulation and all those things point that out, so it's not just my subjectivity. What were the things that you enjoyed the most about the Dick Tracy strips? I love the stories. The book is still available in paperback. It originally came out in, in hardcover. In that, that, that book, which is now a, a bit old, it's uh, a good 20 years old, the original publication, although I've updated it and done other stuff in recent years on Dick Tracy, including something coming out in October. In that original book, I wrote an introduction, and I told about the first time I was really captivated by by Chester Gould's work. It was a story uh, from the, well, between 36 and 38, it was a story he did of the blank. Now, the blank in the 1930s, Dick Tracy, is a lot different than Madonna in the 1990 movie with Warren Beatty. 
it was a very interesting moral story because here was a bad guy in the blank who was killing off other bad guys. And so you'd think, well, that's not all bad. He's getting rid of bad guys. Maybe he's doing the right thing. Well, it comes out that he was no better than the very people he, he was eliminating, some of his old partners. And that really got me to thinking as, as a young kid. I, I, I must have first encountered that at about age oh, 10 or 11, somewhere in there. And I was hooked. I'd, I'd already been, been reading the stuff and, and the material. Uh, the most successful period in terms of circulation and sales for Dick Tracy was the 1950s. The most well-remembered or popular by, by modern standards is the 1940s. But my favorite is the 1930s. The 30s was, for me, as a, it, was a, it still is. It's a really, really interesting period in, in Dick Tracy. And I love it all. Uh, there's... Thankfully, it's being republished right now in some beautiful volumes by IDW, and now we've got this new great one coming out in October for the 85th anniversary of the, the birth of uh, Dick Tracy from Sunday Press, which is going to be an absolutely amazing volume. Of, it's a great big oversized thing. of Full-color Sundays from the 30s, five complete stories, 246 pages, I believe, and the publisher and editor were gracious enough to bring me along for the ride, so I got to contribute quite a bit to that and was made a consulting editor on that project. It's going to be beautiful, not because of anything other than Chester Gould's Dick Tracy arc. It's just we're always kind of fans. Again, we want to celebrate the good things he did, and and, uh, the arc is, is a lot of fun. I read a little bit of Dick Tracy when I was growing up, but the thing I remember the most about Dick Tracy, of course, was the villains, and especially Flat Top. Why would I remember Flattop the most out of all the villains? Well, Flattop was the most popular of, of the villains. I guess we all have our favorites, and I could list half a dozen of them off the top of my head, but Flattop was extremely important. And, of course, he appears in 1943. I think it's the end of 42 and in, into 1943. He shows up Christmas, I think, of 42. Flattop, of course, is not only the name for his physiognomy and for his haircut, his very level head, not morally level, but physically level. It was also the name, of course, of aircraft carriers during World War II, the Flat Tops. Flat Top was modeled somewhat loosely, somewhat closely to Pretty Boy Floyd, who was an Oklahoma gangster. And that was particularly near and dear to Chester Gould's heart because Gould had grown up his first 20 years, 21 years of life uh, were spent in Pawnee, Oklahoma, in northwest Oklahoma. So he was very familiar with Oklahoma history and what would happen in years later. He, he followed that. His parents still lived there until he moved them up later in his life to, to a home near his in Chicago. He knew a lot about Oklahoma. He knew a lot about Pretty Boy Floyd. And Flat Top was kind of the ultimate culmination of, of some of that. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff. How quickly after Tracy is in the comics does he make a transition to, say, radio or serials or movies? He first appears as an experiment in October 1931 in the Detroit Mirror, which is a a smaller subsidiary uh, market of the uh, New York News. But almost immediately after that, by 1932, as I mentioned, he appears in the very first Big Little Book, The Adventures of Dick Tracy. Big Little Books were sort of predecessors, early forerunners of what we today consider traditional format comic uh, comic books. Comic strips had been collected back in the 1890s in book form, but the big little book was a big transition uh, to the the standard comic book format we're so familiar with today. In 32, there was the big little book. There were some uh, other things that occurred in the early 30s, not only toys and marketing, 
there were some big collections done by Dell Publishing and David McKay out in New York City in the early to mid-30s. They were called feature books. They, again, were forerunners. They weren't quite the traditional form of comic book we're familiar with today. Black and white comics, oversized reprints. The first Dick Tracy radio show appeared in 1935. And then the movie serials, there were four serials that started in 39. The four serials were very instrumental um, in keeping movie serials alive, and specifically Republic Pictures. The four Dick Tracy movie serials were some of the most important, successful movie serials in the history of all of the hundreds and thousands of silent and sound movie serials. So they were, they were amazing. Uh, there were four B-movies after that. Uh, the, the fourth one starred Boris Karloff. There's stories about all of those characters and actors. Ralph Bird, with the exception of two of the B-movies, played, played the Dick Tracy character. There was another actor on two of the B-movies who, personally, I liked best of all the Dick Tracy actors ever to play. Morgan Conway was, was a lot better kind of portrayal on screen because he had a sharper draw, jaw than the round-faced Ralph Bird. And Ralph Bird was kind of comedic, and I got to tell you, only in very rare exceptions was Dick Tracy ever a, a comedic character. He was very straight-laced, very, very straightforward. In fact, he was actually, and I'm not the only one who said this through the years, he was actually a fairly dull character. He was very two-dimensional. He was, some people have called him uh, the tent pole that, that held up the circus tent, but he was by far one of the least interesting of all the characters in the comic strip. And uh, Morgan Conway was, in my mind, was the very best Dick Tracy. Now, I know Chester Gould had opinions on all of that material. He liked Ralph Bird a lot, who actually lived not far from him in Crystal Lake, Illinois, not too far from uh, Woodstock, where Chester Gould had moved in the 30s out of Chicago. But then in the 60s, there would be animation. Chester Gould absolutely detested the animation. He, did, he was not a big fan of of Henry Hank Saperstein. He did not like the... the, the, the of course, a guy like me loves it all, you know. But um, that was not his favorite thing. He did not like the the Saperstein uh, UP animation that was done. Lots of toys. Chester Gould had uh, a professional beer friend who would ultimately become the model for Sam Ketchum, who was a very popular character in Dick Tracy starting about in the 40s. Chet's good buddy, Al Lowenthal, out of New York, was he was of uh, a Jewish heritage. And the reason I mention his heritage, not that it matters one way or another, except for respect for that faith or whatever, is that um, Al said to, to Chet one day, he said, you know, there's a high percentage of your New York audience who are Jewish people, and you don't have a Jewish character in Dick Tracy at all. So Chet went ahead, Mr. Gould went ahead. His name, by the way, is pronounced Gould. It's not Gold. Um, he went ahead and, and incorporated this character, became very, very popular, Sam Ketchum. Well, Al, getting back to that topic about the... Uh, Toys was a master marketer, and it was Al who told Chet in the height of the Depression, and they didn't call it the Great Depression back then. They didn't know what it was going to be. Just like World War One was not World War One, they were hoping there wouldn't be a World War Two. It was the Great War in the case, case of World War One. Well, the Great Depression was not called the Great Depression. Gould referred to it as as the Big Depression. And Al Lowenthal said, "You know what? It's really nice that you're successful in your downtown Chicago. You." You've made your way after 10 years working very hard between 1921 and 1931 in Chicago, working for all the big newspapers, the Hearst Syndicate, the New York News, on and on and on, Marshall Field, all this stuff. He said, but, he said, if things go to heck, you may want to go back to your, your frontier roots. 
and he said, it would be really wise of you to move out of town about an hour's away, and that's Woodstock, Illinois, northwest, and start a farm. So Gould went and, and, and built a farm, he and his, his wife for almost 60 years, and oh boy, was she a doll. Edna Gelger Gould was, and I, I knew her personally, and, and I love the lady. She, she chokes me up talking about her because Chester Gould never would have been half of what he was without her. She was an absolute doll, just a, a wonderful woman. But um, Gould had these frontier origins back in, in, in the frontier days of Oklahoma, and so Al Lowenthal, the, the great marketer and salesman, said, you know what, get that farm in Woodstock, specifically Bull Valley. He said, then you've got to fall back if everything goes to heck. And Chet did that, and he built a beautiful farm, which was also one of his many lives. He was The guy didn't stop. He worked right to his dying day. Uh, one of my favorite, all-time favorite books on Chester Gould is the book that I was honored to be able to help with. Uh, it was the biography of him done by his daughter, Jean O'Connell. Now, Jean was born in 1927, so that means this August she's going to have her 89th birthday. And Jean and I have been family for decades, as have her kids, who are a couple years older than me. So we're, you know, so Chester Gold's grandkids are about my age. They're in their late, uh, yeah, late 50s. But her book, her biography of her dad, uh, which also got... Uh, the very rare, it didn't win, but it was the finalist for the Edgar Allan Poe Award in the Mystery Writers of America. It's called Chester Gould, A Daughter's Biography of the Creator of Dick Tracy. Her name is Jean Gould O'Connell. It's full of pictures, and I love that book. And the reason I mention that is there is an incredible history of Chester Gould from the time of his birth in 1900 until 1921 when he moves to Chicago to get on a train $50 in his pocket. It's a legendary story. His mother is absolutely terrified, Alice Miller Gould, his mom. And she says, you know, that's a dangerous place up there. You know, they got gangsters and everything else. And he says, yeah, but I, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, but if I want a chance into the big markets and to be the comic strip artist I want it to be, he says, I got to go to Chicago. So that whole period of, the, of his youth up until 1921 is absolutely fascinating because it frames and defines particularly the first decade of Dick Tracy in the 1930s. And his daughter, Jean, was their only child. You know, life is the way it is, but he, he and Edna were the kind of people that are, they could have had lots of kids because their, their daughter is the best, and they, they were excellent parents. Really great people. I'm, I mean, these are salt-of-the-earth, good, hard-working people, and they give you the proverbial shirt off their back. And uh, his story is amazing, and, and it frames the 1930s Dick Tracy, and there's Lots of references in it to uh, Oklahoma. A little bit more about Oklahoma. When he grew up in Oklahoma, when he was born there in 1900, Oklahoma wasn't, wasn't going to be a state for another seven years. And his parents and, and grandparents had pioneered the Cherokee Strip and were involved in the land rush and all that kind of thing. And he lived in a town which historically was so very, very interesting. I've spent time down there, and it's an amazing town, Pawnee, Oklahoma. It was pretty much equally divided into three segments. It was Native American uh, Indians, it was African Americans, and it was white settlers. In fact, the cemetery in Pawnee is divided in three equal parts, as was the town, and based on those three ethnic groups or, or you know, groups of people. So when he was there as a kid, Chester Gould saw and, and watched a very famous actor, circus actor named Pawnee Bill. 
A Pawnee Bill not be, may not be all that famous to contemporary people, but anybody who knows anything about Buffalo Bill knows that it was Pawnee Bill who, particularly in his last stages of life when he was dying of alcoholism, as being Pawnee, uh, as being Buffalo Bill, where Pawnee Bill moved him to his ranch in Pawnee, Oklahoma, and took care of him in his last last hours, last days. So there was Pawnee Bill, who was an amazing circus performer, second only to Buffalo Bill. Uh, in that town, one of Ch- uh, Chester Gould's good friends was the very first uh, African-American to pitch in the major leagues. And the story goes on and on from, from Pawnee. It's, it's amazing. His childhood friend was actually the inventor back in their childhood of the wrist radio. So that that whole whole story is really well told by Chester Gould's daughter, Jean, in her biography of her dad. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing stuff. Now, we were talking a little bit about the rogues gallery before. When it comes to things like the the movies, the radio show, the the cartoons, these things, was it? And you, t- you even talked about how Tracy might have been considered kind of bland, as opposed to these very very colorful characters. Yeah, how were they portrayed when it came to um, at least? visually in the in these uh, early serials and movies were they done up very heavily or were they pretty much just regular guys they weren't as gruesome as it's ironic i'd use the word gruesome because that was the name of boris karloff's character in the he was in the fourth uh, movie but in the serials and in the movies they were very despicable characters and they had had physical flaws as well as moral flaws but they weren't you know quite as dramatically drawn as on the comic page they were definitely evil guys, though. Uh, Charles Middleton played, you know, who was best known today and, and throughout movie history, very prolific actor, as, of course, Emperor Ming from the Flash Gordon serials. He played Pa Stark in, in I think it's the second one, Dick Tracy Returns, and uh, he plays a, a terribly evil guy. The first villain is a guy named the Spider. Well, that's right out of the pulps. The Spider was a pulp character that was designed as an imitation of the Shadow. Interestingly, the Shadow... And Dick Tracy appeared the same year within, debuted within uh, months of each other in 1931. The physical portrayals and the villains, the movie screen, and then radio, I don't think they, they were nasty. They had some pretty less than redeeming qualities. So there was the claw, and there was split face, and things like that uh, in the movies. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I guess we're comparing apples to oranges in some ways, but and there's limitations within both and opportunities within both media forms. And, of course, the art of what Chester Gould did was that he took a fairly limited medium of black ink on white bristle board, and that's how he told his story. And so any artistic merit or aesthetic that you assign to it has to consider the limitations of, of that art form. It's not like today, and here I'm going to be a little bit opinionated, as if I haven't been already. Um, today we oftentimes sacrifice storyline for special effects. So it's not unusual to see a movie that's pretty light in storyline but relies quite heavily on explosives and computer graphics and all that kind of thing. Back then, Chester Gould had black ink. He might outline it in pencil first, but he had black ink and a, and a, and a semi-stiff Bristol artboard, and that's what he worked with, and that's what makes it quite so amazing to go back and consider the context in which he was working. But the, the movie characters, uh, the bad guys, the grotesques, yeah, they were interesting, but they're not as memorable as Flattop or The Brow. Uh, some of these people, like Pruneface, The Brow, uh, they were war villains, too, and that made them even all, all the more despicable. When, when Brow was killed, 
when his, his end comes after months and months of, of his deviltry, he falls out of a window and he's impaled on an American flagpole, and you can't get much bigger wartime symbolism than that. The villains from the, the movies aren't all that notable, with the exception of Charles Middleton, and then Karloff played in the fourth and final movie before, you know, for there was decades of no movies. And when he was in that movie, he wanted the head billing on that, and they said, no, it's not going to be Karloff versus Dick Tracy. It's going to be Dick Tracy meets Gruesome. And as famous as Karloff was, and I'm a Karloff fan myself, um, he had to, you know, do what they wanted to do. It was not going to be Karloff versus Dick Tracy. Yeah. What I understand is that there were problems. You talked about the villain being impaled on a flagpole. There were problems that people had with the level of violence that were in this comic strip. Yeah, there were. And and, and sometimes Chester Gould uh, could get pretty dramatic in his portrayals. In fact, um, it's in my book, and I think it's from Time Magazine. Uh, In the 1960s, there was a kind of a big deal in in Time Magazine because um, he had blown up a character physically, the, the bad guy had just blown into into just fragments, just a snow shower of bad guy all over the place. People thought he'd gone too far on that. But his his answer and his defense was, you know, <laughs> that's really nothing compared to what the bad guys are doing to the good people, you know? And he, he didn't have, uh, I think for the most part, he, he was pretty even-handed. Now, again, I'm biased. Some people would say, oh, boy, he got pretty pretty radical in a few cases or whatever. I uh, I only see it in a very few limited places. I, I think he he really worked because he knew he was he was a very bright man. He knew that if he he was working with an audience, a very very big audience, because when Dick Tracy was at its height, it sold millions of more newspapers than any best selling book in the world, including A Tree Grows in Brooklyn in the forties. And he knew that he had to be really careful within reason, even though he had license to be who he was because he was that good. He had to be careful of the audience, and so he rarely. Now, there's been some funny stories. Chester Gould would not always know where, in fact, most often didn't know where the storyline was going. So he'd start start a five-month epic on somebody like Flat Top or whatever, and he had no idea what was going to happen, although the vast majority of them would, would meet the pretty dramatic d- demise because that's what he felt they earned. Not all of them. There were a few that were actually uh, rehabilitated. But one time he had Tracy in a death trap scene, and there was no way that Tracy was going to get out of it. He suggested a way of of uh, writing into Dick Tracy, showing his own hand in the comic strip with a art gum eraser, saying, "Oh, it looks like Gould went too far. We better back the story up." And the editors at the New York News and Chicago Tribune said, "Oh no, you're not doing that. You've got to get him out of it." What it was was Tracy had been caught in a big mud case on. There was a rock on top of him. It was coming down through the mud. He was not getting out. It was going to squish him, for lack of a more technical term, uh, underground with this, this rock coming through the mud. Well, what, what Gould had to do was he had a, all of a sudden there had to be, and it wasn't a great storyline, but he had to create sort of a, an escape hatch under him that Tracy found just as, as the rock was coming down and he was able to get out of the situation. But yeah, there, there were times where he, he backboxed himself into a corner once or twice, yeah. Can you tell me about some of the supporting characters that surrounded Dick Tracy? You talked a little bit about Sam Ketchum, but let's talk about some of the other ones. My favorite, and maybe not the best one to start with, but my favorite is Dick Tracy Jr. Now, the Dick Tracy Jr. story is straight out of Charles Dickens. Dick Tracy Jr. is, is Oliver Twist, and Steve the Tramp, his uh, adopted, abusive 
father, uh, actually it's not his father, it's adoptive father. His real father is a blind man out west named Hank Steele in the comic strip. But Dick Tracy Jr. is, is, is maybe, maybe my favorite character. And I know it's a subject of the time and what you're thinking at the moment or whatever. But I th- I'd be hard-pressed to find a, a good guy that, that I like as much or more than Dick Tracy Jr. He, he was right out of Charles Dickens. Gould was a pretty literary man. He'd read a lot of Poe. He loved Sherlock Holmes. He loved Charles Dickens, although you and I know that Charles Dickens, as wonderful as he was, was a, uh, was a soap opera writer, and the soap operas were awfully very dark and, and, and not very fun uh, back in the 1800s. But the, 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 the Dick Tracy Jr. story is, is a really... That's a fun one that, that permeates the whole, whole storyline. And throughout uh, the life of the comic strip Dick Tracy, Junior grows up. And by the 50s, he's dealing with teenage romance and heartbreak. By the 60s, he's got a wife and children. And, you know, uh, in the 1990 movie, which had many strengths and weaknesses, uh, the character played by Charlie Corsmo, uh, I'm sure he's a grown man by now, but he was a young man from Minnesota at the time. Uh, who played Junior, I think did an absolutely fantastic job uh, getting that storyline out there. And uh, Junior was the one who develops Crime Stoppers, which was a, a group of teenage boys and girls that were interested in doing the right thing. And then ultimately, Crime Stoppers is a term that came from Chester Gould that became the Sunday feature that accompanied Dick Tracy in the 40s, like about 1946. Uh, but Junior was part of all that. Now, the other characters, good ones, there was... Um, Pat Patton. Well, Officer Pat was the stereotypical Irish cop on the beat. Uh, that's just the way it was. And, and, and I'm not commenting good or bad for the stereotype. It was part of the times and, and, and all that sort of thing. Officer Pat starts out in the very first weeks of Dick Tracy, and he's not really well-developed. Ultimately, he's given a last name, and he becomes Tracy's not only right-hand man, but later on his boss, because Tracy never wants to be chief of police. He feels he's He's going to do a better job as a detective. So Pat Patton is a, is a fun character. He's kind of the Watson in the story. Uh, a lot of, lot of the story comes through his vision, not always, but he's the very trusted sidekick. Now, for 17 years, Dick Tracy, from the origin story on, dated, of course, his sweetheart, Tess Trueheart. Well, they would ultimately get married um, and have children, and it was all wonderful, but there were lots of hardships for their relationship along the way, too. Tesla was tremendously tolerant because Tracy would drop everything, uh, no matter how important it was, to pursue the next crook. And uh, he wasn't always the best, uh, he always wasn't always the best date for her. In fact, she went ahead at one point in the early to mid-30s, and she married somebody else. So Tess Trueheart actually got married. Uh, well, the name of the guy isn't important. His name was Edward and I can't pronounce it. It was home run spelled backwards. He was a baseball player, professional baseball player. So Tess marries him. He gets killed before their marriage is, I guess we can say this, consummated. And But then she's she's widowed. Well, Tess is wonderful because she's very supportive of Tracy throughout all those years. And after 17 years, Tracy finally does the right thing, and he goes through with the marriage and all that kind of stuff. That was kind of kind of a big deal. The, the original chief of police, Chief Brandon, was a real good guy, but he ultimately had, was forced into retirement in the comic strip, much as other police chiefs had been throughout the 30s, because he had not paid attention and he'd let some bad guys get away with stuff. And it looked bad on he, bad at him. There's a very famous scene in history where John Dillinger down at Crown Point uh, 
Indiana when he's in jail, puts his arm around one of the police chiefs. Well, to this day, it's a very controversial picture, and the police chief got in big trouble. That same storyline was done uh, in Dick Tracy, and and Chief Brandon went went to retire, and he became... uh, he just worked at a, a, a lawn and garden enterprise after that. One other thing that should be said, while things are drawn pretty much black and white in terms of good and evil, there were indeed, contrary to common belief, some middle ground. What usually happened, this happened in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, there would be somebody who was kind of caught between good and evil. And if you were Johnny Mintworth in the 1930s, my friend Jeff Kirsten says that he was an imitation of John Rockefeller Jr., a very spoiled, extremely wealthy young guy, or the Summer Sisters in the 1940s who fall victim to the brow, what happens is that if you don't clearly decide on being good in Dick Tracy, if you're in the middle, you're going to be grouped with the bad guys and your fate is going to be pretty pretty horrible. So there are some characters that are not necessarily black or white, good or evil, and there were some, some very famous stories of a couple of the bad guys turning into being really honorable citizens. One was Lips Manless. He turns into a guy named Bob Honor, and he becomes a really, really significant as the storyline develops. And there were others as well. That There were a few cases where bad guys became good. So it wasn't all black and white, but if you didn't decide very markedly for the good, you were going to be grouped with the bad, and it was not going to be good for you, you know? So ultimately, this episode is going to be about the 1990 Dick Tracy uh, film, and the one character that we haven't talked about who is significant to the film is Breathless Mahoney. Can you tell me a little bit about the real Breathless Mahoney? The real Breathless Mahoney was was a scoundrel. And her father was also a very famous character in the fictional world of Dick Tracy. Her father was a guy by the name of Shaky. And Shaky faces a hideous end. In fact, I'm looking at the comic strip reprint right now in my home office of, of Shaky's end. He gets frozen under some ice in under a pier. But Anyway, that's, that's another story. Breathless was a kind of a despicable character. She, she was kind of your sociopath, psychopath, no moral compass whatsoever. In the movie, of course, all that kind of is, is secondary to having Madonna in the film. Now, I've, I have met Madonna's parents. We lived in the same town for a while, not too many years ago over in Michigan. Uh, her role in the movie is, is Madonna being Madonna. Uh, there is some Breathless Mahoney. Breathless Mahoney is not as a sexual or sensual creature. She's beautiful in the comic strip. And Chester Gould's daughter and I politely disagree on that. I think uh, Mr. Gould could draw women very well, and his daughter says, no, no, he could never draw women. My dad could never draw women. (laughs) But um, her character is very much a Madonna character in the movie. But for better or worse, there it is. Now, my favorite role of Breathless in that film, of course, she turns out to be the blank, which is not how it happens in 1936 in Dick Tracy. It's it's this gangster named Frank Redrum, Redrum spelled murder backwards, who's out to kill his uh, his cohorts who, who turned on him. I think I, I mentioned that a little while ago, how that story so moved me. But in the movie, she plays the blank. And my favorite contribution, a very subjective uh, of her to that film, is when she play, uh, sings with uh, Mandy Patinkin. Now, I'm a big Mandy Patinkin fan. I think he's got a tremendous talent. And he plays 88 Keys, the, the piano player in the movie and they sit down at the piano together and he plays and they sing a duet and it's absolutely gorgeous. I, I think that's a real highlight on the movie. And, um, and of course there's strengths and weaknesses to the film. A lot of good things, some things that some of us would have done differently, but it came out and that's good. There seems to be cycles when it comes to some of these 
pulp heroes coming back into popular culture, like Batman being big in the 60s. And I remember there was a pilot for Dick Tracy in the late 60s. Why do you think it is that these things kind of travel in cycles? You know, it's true of all kinds of genre fiction. Um, it goes in waves, you know. If, if we were to look, and this is a big, horrible, broad generalization on my part. But if we were to look at, say, for example, dark fantasy or horror fiction, okay, there have been many good practitioners, very successful practitioners over the last 200 years. But it seems like roughly about every 50 years, a new one emerges who's just the archetype of horror writing. So you start out with Edgar Allan Poe in the 1830s and 40s. You hit Howard Phillips Lovecraft in the 1920s. And you get Stephen King by the 1970s. And this stuff kind of comes and goes. Now, some people argue, well, the horror story uh, always has a hard time in times of war. And World War II is a particularly low spot for the horror story because the real-life horror of World War II overshadowed anything that people could make up. Interesting theories on all of that about the cyclical nature of all the different things when they come around, whatever. Now, to his credit, and, 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 and again, I don't want to be overly hostile or, or nasty or whatever. I have nothing against the man. I wish him the best. The reason that Dick Tracy came out in 1990 was Warren Beatty. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front, Warren Beatty is one lousy Dick Tracy. He is the worst character ever to play Dick Tracy. Uh, he's got too much baggage with him from sleazy movies like Shampoo or whatever. He's typecast. And for him to come in there, even for a guy who's not a Dick Tracy expert or, or a big-time aficionado, and try to play the straight-laced, clean cop, it doesn't work. It does not only for me, but it doesn't work for a lot of people. Now, Beatty has wanted to do a second movie ever since the 1991, and the syndicate and the powers that be, including others I won't mention, will never let it happen. Because as wonderful as it is that he brought the 19, 1990 movie out, he was not a good actor in that film at all. Subjectivity, yes, that's subjectivity on my part, but it's a generally held belief by most people who know the movie or whatever. The film had a couple of other weaknesses. One of the, the, the worst things they did at the start of the film is there's a St. Valentine's Day type massacre in the garage. I don't know if you're familiar with the film or not. They come in, I believe it's Flat Top, played by William Forsythe Jr., I think. He storms into the garage with a, some cohorts and their Tommy guns, Thompson submachine guns, and they destroy this whole raft of grotesque rogues. There they kill Little Face Finney, they kill the rodent, they kill all kinds of different characters. And the first time I thought, I said, oh man, way to kill your sequels. Those are all villains that could have been used in subsequent films. Now, maybe that's a bit touchy or whatever, but I wasn't the only one who held that opinion. What a mistake to kill off all those good, wonderful, ghouled villains right in the first sequence. Well, that wasn't so good. Warren Beatty, God love him, and, and, and like I say, I wish him the best. He, he was not the Dick Tracy character. And, and I mixed it best on Madonna. But other than that, and of course, I'm a, I'm a purist who grew up on Chester Gould, Dick Tracy, and though politically very independent and with, with all kinds of different leanings and all kinds of directions. When it comes to Dick Tracy, I want my Dick Tracy to be pretty traditional. And I don't want Madonna playing Breathless Mahoney. I don't want Warren Beatty trying to clean himself up. Not that there's anything wrong with his other image, but he's not the sterile, cold, square-jawed Dick Tracy character. He just isn't, and it doesn't work. The soundtrack for that movie is beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous soundtrack. 
and everything from Madonna's contributions to Mandy Patinkin to I think it's Stephen Sondheim who does it. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure on that last name, but it's big and uh, it's very very good. Um, so that's more than one. I write about that. That my book came out just after the movie, and I happened to be in Woodstock for the early premiere, Woodstock, Illinois. I was there, and when the movie came out, it was met with uh, the overcrowded, filled auditorium stood up and standing ovation for it. It, it, it was it was a big deal. I'd like to see him do another Dick Tracy movie. I'd like to see him do it with an absolute no no name as Dick Tracy, somebody nobody knows doesn't have any baggage in terms of character type or typecasting. Well, I just have one more question for you, and I want to know what you're, what you're working on these days. You said you have a lot of books coming out, and I want to know uh, kind of what the haps is with those. Got a lot of pulp reprints coming out. You know, there's some really beautiful stuff coming out from a variety of presses. I saw on the phone that you're from the Livonia area. Uh, there's a publisher near you, a very dear friend of mine named Steve Hafner. And Steve runs Hafner Press, and it's a beautiful hardcover publisher, some paperbacks, mostly hardcover, of classic golden age science fiction and mysteries. I've got the second volume in the series I'm doing for him, great big fat omnibus volume that's due out um, in Columbus here. I've got stuff with Black Dog Books out of uh, Normal, Illinois with Tom Roberts. He's, I have a brother named Tom Roberts, but this Tom Roberts is my brother only in friendship, not in biology. And... and uh, Stuff like that all over. The one that I'm excited to see is in October, we have the, ninth, uh, the 85th anniversary of the debut of Dick Tracy. And Sunday Press is doing that massive volume. And it, I've seen the tear sheets on it. I've, As the old English professor, I proofread the thing top to bottom uh, in a very obsessive kind of way. And I contributed five, six essays to it or whatever. But it's absolutely a gorgeous book. And, and, and that book, when it comes out, I think it's going to really... Sunday Press is also very, very well known for other reprints of comic strips. But I think this one is going to take them to the new level in terms of sales. I think they're going to be reprinting and doing other volumes as well. So pulp fiction, science fiction, I do a lot of biography work. Uh, I was blessed to have as my very dear friend. A lot of people say they were close to him, but we indeed were close. Ray Bradbury and I were very good friends from 1982 till his passing in 2012, and I'm not ashamed to say there were tears in my eyes when he died. He and I were very close. I used to call him on his birthday every every August, and he would say, call him out in California, and he'd say, he'd say, Gary, and he'd say, I love you. And, oh, man, it, it, that didn't stay with me for the rest of my life. I've been fortunate to know a lot of other neat people, but uh, a lot of them have been my students. I uh, I've had students through the years go on to do things that make me so proud, and they come back and say, hey, Dr. Roberts, look what we did, and you were the best, and I'll look at them and say it had nothing to do with me. You never needed me. You were you were pretty neat by yourself, you know? So I've been, I've been very fortunate. As much as I love Dick Tracy, I love the Chester Gould family more, and I say that very, very sincerely. And the same is true with a lot of my other author buddies and friends, that I like them for who they are, not always just for their work. So... That was off the topic, too, so here you got some editing to do, I guess.
what role would you say, as far as films go, what was kind of the one that really put you on the map? Dirty Mountain Scoundrels. I know that you do comedy, and you've done comedy, and you do comedy absolutely wonderfully. But when I think of you, I tend to think of you more in your serious roles, like mm-hmm. things like Mortal Thoughts or mm-hmm. Mr. Holland's Opus. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that is, because you do knock it out of the park when it comes to comedic roles as well. Because people don't take... I mean, it's, 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 this has changed more recently, but in general, people don't take comedic actors very seriously. And it, at least that is my experience. And that is why, when I was younger, I thought I've got to be able to do both. Because if I just do comedy, I, I don't think I'll survive. Because I had seen people be really funny and, and not get, in my opinion, the, res- the respect, you know. Um, and, and I noticed that as just a kid. I, I certainly heard about that when I was in high school. You know, when I was in high school as a performing artist, the thing that was great about that is that we had, you know, actors who had experience, you know, talk to us about, like, how difficult um, it was to be an actor and, 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 like, live like that. And so they told us a lot of, I mean, I knew early on when I was 13 years old, I knew that it was difficult for women and I knew that it was difficult for funny women. And I learned that in the ninth grade. So when you're very young like that, you know, it leaves a very strong impression so that by the time I was really working in my 20s, I knew, you know, when I was in my 20s, the Second City wanted me to be part of a Second City TV show, um, the Second City in Chicago, this is. And I, part of me was like super excited about the idea. And then the other part of me like remembered those little lectures we got that were supposed to you know, we weed out the strong at the high school performers. They used to just, it was just so brutal, some of the stuff they would tell us. And I knew it was to like weed out any of the people who weren't going to be able to be like, let it roll off their back kind of thing, you know. But anyway, I thought about that when Second City asked me and I just thought, I can't, no, I'm not going to do just funny because I know I can be funny because I am funny. But I, I felt like, um, I would be pigeonholed and I wouldn't get to do some of the serious things that I like too, you know, and I, and I knew that from just comic actors. I knew, I knew that Steve Martin was taking, he's like super serious in real life. And I knew that he wasn't going to be getting serious roles very much because he told me that. And I, I knew how it was for, for comedians. It's different today and it's different, especially for women today because they have a much bigger voice. You know, these funny women, like, Tina Fey or whoever, you know, they, it's different. Um, there's a lot more than her, of course, but, um, but when I was um, doing stuff, you know, in the eighties, I mean, come on, it was, <laughs> it wasn't so hot for the funny. And not only that, um, they pretty much stopped making the romantic comedies as far as I'm concerned in the eighties, like the nineties, it hardly had any, you know, uh, the other thing is when I was growing up, I, I watched, um, you know, these, these great romantic comedies of the, of the 40s and the 30s that I would see on television, you know, because um, in those days they would play a lot of old movies on Saturdays and Sundays, and, and I would watch those, and I loved those old movies. And I kind of wanted to do that, to do those kind of, like, romantic comedies and do some serious roles. And then, you know, when I got older, I was like, oh, they're not really doing romantic comedies like that anymore. They're different. And then it was like, oh, they're not even doing romantic comedies now. That is why, that is the very long answer to why I do both. 
when you moved out to Hollywood, was that right around the time that you and John Malkovich got married? No. I got married in Illinois in 1982, and I had already been with John for four years at that point. I'd been with John from the 70s. I got married in 82, and I didn't come out to California. I mean, I came out to visit, but I didn't move out here until when I was doing Dick Tracy. When I was doing Dick Tracy, I was living in a hotel, and then I think I was already separated. I was already separated, and then I, I decided to, like, rent a house out here. And um, I remember while I was filming Dick Tracy at one point, I went back home and, and like, cleared out the apartment and then came back to, to California and, and this house that I rented. So you said that you were offered the role of Tess Trueheart in Dick Tracy. Yes. How did you prepare for the role for that? Well, I didn't really know what to do for that. I just went to, you know, Warren to ask him what should, how should we, I mean, what should I do? Because the role as written didn't really seem like the role in the comic strip. I wasn't sure. And, he, you know, basically what he said to me is, I cast you because I want warmth and sincerity, and that's what you bring naturally so you don't have to worry. Yeah. And I'd go, no, but I need more help than that. And he'd go, no, just be warm and sincere. <laughs> and, then, and so that was really all that would happen, you know, and then if I would ever seen it was, I would be doing something. And he, he, might, he, he liked to do a lot of takes, whereas I don't like to do a lot. I'm fine with doing more, you know. I'll try to do it in a varied way. But he was very good at making actors feel as though there was nothing else around. Like there were no cameras. Like he could really forget. Because one thing that happens when you do take numerous times is you really do kind of forget that anybody's there, you know. And that's very conducive to feeling natural. Did you have to wear uh, a lot of makeup for that role? Or did you get to uh, miss out on all the fun with the prosthetics? I did have to wear makeup on that role, and I had to actually, on that role, the makeup artist was a New York makeup artist who, um, I think I think I actually met him on Making Mr. Right. I'm pretty sure that's where I met him, but I'm not sure, because he also did Madonna, but he, um, he was in the New York Union at that time and not the L.A. Union. And so he had to do my makeup in the parking lot because he wasn't actually allowed to do it on the set. So we had to be over there to do it. He was very sweet, though. Um, And then I came up. Also, I was a little worried. I thought she should be blonde because, like, but then it was tricky because Madonna was blonde. At the time, my hair was, like, kind of mousy brown you know, like dark blonde, mousy brown type thing. And Warren liked it like that. He was like, it's just very natural. I mean, that's just you, you know, this like dark blonde thing. We don't need to. And then I said, but it's so dull with like all the colors and the look of this movie. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, what if I made it red? And he was like, red, that might be kind of cool. And then I think they did like a red wig on me at first just to see the look. And then we actually colored my hair red and that's how the red came about. Had you been a fan of the Dick Tracy comic strip when you were growing up? No, I didn't know it. It was before my time. So I didn't know it or whatever. I, it wasn't in any comic strips that I saw. So I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, he was really obsessed with it, but I didn't know. So I had to like get the comics to know who the characters were. And you got to see how, not very attractive, some of those women. Yeah, yeah, I remember Mumbles, you know, and, and those those characters. 
where mumbles and prune face. You know, that's so interesting. I, I like that very much, that idea. I just remember how pointy all the women's noses were in the comic strip. Yeah, well, everything is very exaggerated, but I, I guess that's why it makes for great characters because people have a very definitive look. And I think that's also like the customer was so great on that. And she came up with that hat for me, which really made me feel really like I loved that hat. The, the hat with the two that almost looked like a heart. That was um, such a great hat for Tess Trueheart, you know. It just So I like that kind of definitive looks. Yeah, I really liked doing that movie. You shared a lot of screen time with uh, Charlie Corsmo. Yeah. What was he like to work with at the time? He was he was just great. I mean, he was you know uh, just trying very hard, and he's a very he was a very bright little boy. Having been in high school and wanting to be an actor, you know, I was around kids who, you know, went to act as little kids, and so I had affection for that, you know. Um, it kind of related to a kid who wants to do that. So I tried to pay a lot of attention to him, you know, and try to make sure that he felt okay and like he wasn't tired and things like that. If I, this is an indelicate question, please feel free to tell me to mm-hmm. F off. But it sounds like you were kind of going through some tough times when it came to when you were shooting Dick Tracy, like cleaning out your apartment and all that. That must have been really tough for you to kind of detach, or was it easy for you to detach and go into that whole other world? Actually, John quit a movie he was on to try to like win me back. So he, that's what happened during Dick Tracy. He came, he he came back to where I was living to try to he he he, he dropped out of his movie to come back here. You know, so I was kind of preoccupied with that, like. Okay. Um, and so, so that didn't really, the cleaning at the apartment, it was basically just more, it wasn't, an, it wasn't an emotional thing because John was trying to make it work here. I, I wasn't emotional about it at all. That role of Tess Trueheart, you were talking about how you like the older films and everything. Was that kind of your chance to kind of live in that role of a, a, an older film? I mean, because the, it, there definitely is a throwback type of feel to that film. Well, it was in terms of like the cars and the clothes, but mm, not so much in the acting style really. But, you know, when I was on the fake street on the lot, it was really fun. There's a street called the New York street and it was super fun to see those old cars come, you know, tearing around when they were like firing the machine guns out of the window. (laughs) That was like, Super fun to see those old cars. I mean, it really was like, wow, I'm actually here doing this. That was exciting. But I didn't feel too much like I was in the style of of that time in in terms of speaking. Because there was a style, you know, in the 30s. And there was a style of acting that's very different from what we do today, you know. And we forget that. But when you actually go back and look at the movies... And I'm talking about not just the B movies, but the A movies. They had a style that for them was realistic, but for us would look melodramatic. So even when you see, like, let's say, even if you see Claudette Colbert and what is that movie? Um, it Happened One Night? Yeah. Even if you see that, that's like the most realistic of that period, I think. And it's, that one's not melodramatic, but it's still in a style, you know, it's just everything. They just... Everything's talk very fast. They just move very fast. Everything's just very fast. You know, it's like we don't talk like that anymore. 
And then they stress certain words, you know, and they just have a, a, a kind of, they have that mid-Atlantic thing also going on. And then if you look at a movie like, you know, Dinner at Eight, that, I'm pretty sure that won an Academy Award, or at least it was nominated for some, okay, but that movie has some stuff that's so over the top, it, but it's good, but it's it's just so, you know, in other words, if we had tried to talk in that way in Dick Tracy, it really wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked because like in, in, in Dinner at Eight, you know, Billy Burke is the, if you remember, and I'm sure you do because you seem like you're a real movie aficionado, you know, Billy Burke is the, is the, is the, is the wife of the dying um, um, Lionel Barrymore. So she's, you know, running around trying to arrange this dinner. And I mean, she is talking like, uh, you know, it seems real until you really start to, to, to listen to the tone and the, you know, just everything. We must have the butter over here and put the, put the butter over there. And must, do you have the wine glasses? Everything must, it's just so, so fake. But for them, obviously not fake, you know? And then there's a scene in that movie where, I realize this is completely off topic, but you asked me about the 30s style and Dick Tracy. That's why I'm giving you a really detailed um, answer. So there's this part um, in that movie where the daughter finds out that her her lover, who is John Barrymore, I think both Barrymores are in that, it has committed suicide. And she literally, she's like, weeps for about 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and then goes to dinner. For generative. And so I do really like those movies, but I, I see that what's defined as realistic acting has really changed over the years. Just like, frankly, even if you look at things from the 70s now, some of that that we thought was so real doesn't look so real anymore. It's just interesting to me because, I mean, I really looked at this stuff to, to figure this out, you know. I mean, ditto the 50s, 60s, you know. We think the 60s started the real, you know, movement and everything. So it's not. When you look at it, it's not very real. Yeah, I always think of that very clipped dialogue of uh, Barbara Stanwyck in um, Double Indemnity or, yeah. or God, Fred McMurray himself. Just that whole, you know, patter that they have. Yeah. And, and, and Betty Davis, even if in um, what's that movie that starred Victory, you know, I guess that's more obvious that she's. Talk, but it's just all so dramatic, you know. <laughs> just, I mean, that one she might slow down, but it's just so. I mean, everything is so one sense of reality, you know. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's that's why it would be very tricky to do a '30s movie in contemporary times and truly do it in '30s style, because I think people would find it camp. That's why you have to kind of make it. You, maybe you have the look of the 30s and maybe you have a couple words of the 30s. You know, you might call each other sweetheart or something, you know, which is an old word. But you have to act of that day whenever you did it or the audience isn't going to relate to you, I think. Can you tell me about some of the stuff that you're working on these days? Well, there's that the night of that HBO show I was just talking about where I play the lawyer. That's it's just an excellent script and it's really well directed. It has really, really good actors, John Turturro. And then this other actor who's from England, who's, he's just a beautiful actor. His name is Riz Ahmed. He's just, he's just so very, very good. And then I did a movie that I think is a, another really good script. It's called the circle. It's starring um, Tom Hanks and Emma Watson. And it's, it's a very good, um, 
I think it's going to be very good. I did this other movie that is with Holly Hunter and Jerry Coons that was really fun. I mean, it's a super low-budget little independent movie, but I think that's going to be fun. We'll see. You know, it seems like it should be. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about Future Man? Because I've read conflicting reports as to if that's a show, a pilot, or a, a movie. Um, it's a pilot. It's a pilot. And that's all we did so far. We did the pilot, and, and I don't know if it'll be a series yet, but that was produced by Seth Rogen and his partner, Evan Goldsmith, and um, and Evan's one of the writers, and, you know, this other team of writers who are very good and very funny, and it stars Josh Hutcherson and Eliza Poop. And, um, you know, Josh, is, I didn't have stuff with Eliza because I'm playing um, Josh's mother, but, you know, he's just great. He's He's very natural, and he's a very... Uh, on, on top of being just a very natural actor, he's he's just a sweet guy. He is a really sweet kid. He's he's from um, I think he's from Kentucky or Tennessee. Something anyway. He's he's from like a small town, and he's just very natural and really really nice kid. I really like him. And it's also with um with Ed Bagley, who uh, Ed and I are actually very very good friends in life. So it's just another one of those serendipitous things where we get to be together. He's, you know, I love it. He's just great. You ever go for a ride in his electric car? Of course. I bought an electric car based on my ride in his car. That was years ago. That was back when the charging situation wasn't like it is today. I mean, today there's chargers all over. When when I first got my car, it was, let me think, how many years ago was that? I think it was 15 years ago. Okay. So like there were no chargers hardly. So it was kind of a nightmare. It was a nice thing to do for the environment, but oh my God. So I'm I'm so glad that they've finally caught up uh, technologically with the electric car because now you can, charges are everywhere and they're way faster. And and plus you have way more choice of what kind of electric car you get. Ed and I share a lot of the same passions. My name is Dan Campling. I guess you could just say that I'm a Dick Tracy aficionado and a film enthusiast as yourself and love talking about them and love uh, hearing behind the scenes stories and going through research for stuff. Because as we know, on the Dick Tracy Blu-ray, we got nothing, not even one of the trailers that you had to find on YouTube. But that makes it all the more fun to actually go in and find the uh, press kits and and you go back and you read all of the magazine articles. And in, in this case, I've been very lucky to have uh, four incarnations of the script that all represent different uh, 
uh, stages of the production of it, starting from when uh, John Landis was uh, going to direct the f- uh, feature, and then subsequently Walter Hill was going to direct it, and then at a certain point uh, Dick Benjamin uh, was going to direct it, and then finally it ended up uh, being directed by Warren Beatty himself. Who were the uh, guys who were writing these scripts back then? The drafts of the script that I have are the uh, credited writers on the film, uh, Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., and they actually uh, filed an arbitration uh, because they were trying to have a screenplay credit on uh, the final film for Warren Beatty himself, along with uh, Bo Goldman, uh, said to have revised the script. But uh, when you look through all four of the drafts, they basically followed the same structure and Essentially, you feel like that the final script was like a like a tight revision and just kind of a take a scene out here, take a scene here, probably write a line of dialogue here. And uh, as I understand it, there is an arbitration uh, statement that's included with the uh, Michigan State collection that has a lot of uh, cash and eps uh, drafts of various movies, particularly a uh, number of things on Dick Tracy, including uh, the treatments that I've mentioned to you that I have uh, that I read about uh, that pertain to uh, ideas that they had for a Dick Tracy 2 and a Dick Tracy 3. Now, how close were those drafts that you're talking about is of the Dick Tracy script? How close are they to what the final product ended up being? Uh, it's actually very close in terms of uh, the story. It's the same kind of as uh, the same setup. Big Boy Caprice is is the uh, head bad guy, and all of the various Chester Gould uh, creations and all the villains are kind of getting under one roof to pretty much take over the town. And kind of how they uh, uh, kind of how they differed throughout the uh, various various years was that the very first draft of the film. Uh, that was written for John Landis, and he was the one that commissioned uh, Cash and Epps to write the script. And the only uh, obligation that he gave him was that he told both of them, all I want is that the movie to be set in the 1930s, and I want Big Boy to be the villain. Because I believe in the comic strips, Big Boy Caprice didn't have a last name. He was just called Big Boy because essentially he was Al Capone. And what's interesting in that first draft is that there is no character of the kid in it. Kind of how they worked around that is that basically they just had Dick Tracy and Tess Trueheart just kind of having their lovers quarrels because he's always at work. And like I think at one point she tries to bring him a tuna fish sandwich and he doesn't eat it. And one point he's trying to throw rocks at her window to get her attention because he blew off a date. And then that leads into uh, the part where, uh, as we see in the final move, where they try to they try to kill him in front of uh, Tess Trueheart's apartment. The similar beats are all in there. It's just that they're different at very various points. And then another big revelation was uh, in that first draft, the character of Breathless Mahoney is that she is very minimal. Like there is no relationship between her and Tracy at all. She's just kind of, yeah, it's like she, she gets introduced the same way as you see in the movie, but then she's just always kind of like big boys mall basically. She's always in the background, and and they still kept the revelation at the end that she's the blank. And with that, the blank is actually a much more predominant character. Like, he appears a lot more earlier in the movie and kind of has more of a presence throughout it. And there was, like, a really good 
scene that kind of reminded me of uh, what happened in Batman Begins with Bruce Wayne and Jim Gordon, like when they first meet, except instead of in his office, they're in Dick Tracy's car. And at one point, he's the blank is actually giving Tracy information on how to get to the top of uh, this crime organization, which is Big Boy, which is that they have to get another set of criminals. This is what the characters are called. Uh, it was called Big Mama and the midget that obviously didn't make it into the final film and there and uh, they were they were two of the big ones and they had like scenes where at one point they knock off a uh, a candy store the midgets dressed as as a as a little boy and big mama's like is is act is somebody that's like she's always constantly eating chocolates and just doing all this fun stuff and at one point they had Tracy in disguise as the candy store owner and he arrests them right then and there. And it leads to a big chase. And at one point, I, I think Mama's hanging off of building at one point. And it was kind of reminiscent of uh, a chase that happened in The Untouchables. So obviously, kind of the first time around, it was a little bit more zanier and like at one point uh, during the when they're setting up the raid on Club Ritz, which in uh, the early drafts was called Club Lavender. At one point, Tracy is in disguise as a janitor. And like when they're trying to bug the uh, conference room, I think Flat Top and a couple others come in and says, oh, you're not supposed to be in here. And yeah, and then they let Tracy go, who is who's in disguise as a janitor. And then I think that in another draft, it was revised that he was a waiter. And at one point, Big Boy gives him some grief and Tracy, you know, being playful, he takes uh, some hot sauce and he puts it in his drink and he serves it to him and he spits it out. And it's like, oh, what's this? Uh. <laughs> and under Lannis's direction, it was a little bit more zanier and just a little. And uh, when I read it, it, it did feel like a much more. Not just colorful in the sense of how the movie looked, but also in the way that the movie felt, because the final film is, even though uh, Al Pacino has a very uh, zany performance, kind of everybody else is kind of in the more subdued area. But with this one, it did feel like something that you, that you would see in his other films, like in the Blues Brothers, basically. And kind of the thing that I always lamented about it was I was like, oh, I always really would have liked to have seen what Landis would have done with that Tommy gun shootout in front of the club because cause very much in the movie it just always felt like, okay, one car comes out, they shoot at it. Then the next car comes out, they shoot at it. And it it, it, it does pack a punch, but I'm just like, oh, with Landis, he would have just had like 50 cars come out at once and they would have just all been stacking up on top of each other and a lot more explosions and just a lot more crazier, zanier stuff. But at last, it wasn't meant to be. What year are we talking? What was the, the date on this, these early screenplays? This was actually in the early 80s. I think this was around, it would have been around 81 to 82. What I heard from Epps was that he said that they didn't include the character of the kid, or as he's known in the comics as Junior Tracy. Uh, they didn't include him at first because they thought that Landis would want them to cut him out of the script because of the Twilight Zone incident. But when they turned in their first draft of the script, the first thing that uh, apparently the first thing that Landis told them was, where's Junior Tracy? We should have him in here. And they subsequently did a second draft and they felt that that was a nice addition to it because they felt that the movie needed more of a heart other than just having uh, Tracy and, and Tess kind of having their quarrel throughout it. 
and they felt like including him gave it much more of a better story potential for, oh, this is supposed to be a story about a man who's torn between his duty, which is uh, his job uh, as a police detective, and also having uh, his heart, which is represented by Tess Trueheart and him having a new son now uh, by the name of... uh, I'll just call him Junior because in the comics he was always called Junior. And actually in those early drafts in the scene where he gets his honorary certificate right then and there, he's, you know, they're told, okay, well, what do you want your name to be? And he says, oh, I already know what my name's going to be. And they go, what's that? And he goes, Dick Tracy Jr. And then Tracy smiles at him and he goes, well, put her there, Junior. Also, we, we know that there was another character that was named Junior that was on the big screen around that time in uh, Problem Child and Problem Child 2. Probably just thinking like, oh, there's a character named that in that movie. So in this one, we'll just stick to calling him the kid. And and apparently uh, Beatty liked that name kid because he he was called kid a lot when he was younger. And and a lot of the lot of personal things got into that movie. Like the reason why uh, Tess Trueheart is red haired is because of his mother and also for his sister, who's also redhead. Because in the comics, uh, Tess Trueheart's blonde, and I guess it kind of would it it. That contrast that's in the movie makes up for it. You know, you mentioned a lot of directors kind of coming in and coming out of the project. And now this was post-Twilight Zone as far as when Landis is working on this? Yes. And I think that the trial was kind of starting up around that time. And I think that's why he ultimately had to bow out. I believe at first it was supposed to be set up at uh, Universal, and then when they saw that the cost of it was going to be pretty expensive because it was going to be a 1930s period piece film, they decided to uh, have a joint venture with Paramount Pictures. And at that time, they got Joel Silver interested in producing it, and along with Joel Silver, that's when Walter Hill got interested I'm sure that you're very familiar with Hill's work with uh, with the Warriors, and I think that that was kind of the direction that he was wanting to push the film, was that he wanted to make it a gritty, realistic movie set in that era, and I actually did correspond with him at one point. That was kind of his impression on it, is that he wanted it to be a realistic movie that was set during that era, and I did ask him, would you have had Dick Tracy in his trademark yellow hat and yellow coat? And he said, absolutely not. So kind of the way that they described it was that it felt like that a lot of things that Hill was kind of picturing and imagining would subsequently end up in Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. Uh, which I believe was also produced by, I'm trying to remember if it was Art Linson or Floyd Murex, but he was, uh, but those two were the initial producers uh, on the project at one point. I believe how they sold it to Paramount was that they were, uh, was that they were trying to get them interested in having a property that was similar to James Bond. And they were trying to push for that one. And I think that kind of the whole, desire to do something dick tracy uh, actually stemmed from the mid-70s when the sting came out that brought a lot of interest back into the 1930s and of course a big character of that time was dick tracy and they thought like well if we're going to do some kind of cops and robbers type of movie i think that dick tracy would be the most appropriate character to exploit that and i think that that's what drew in uh, walter hill to do it as well was that i think that he was basically just wanting to do a movie of that type and it just so happened that that was 
the biggest project to do at the time. So it wasn't so much as uh, in Landis's case, he was more. In, I think he was actually a genuine fan of the comic strip and was really interested in doing something of that uh, of that type. When it seemed like more for uh, Walter Hill, he was just more interested in doing something that was set during that era. I'm trying to remember. You mentioned Richard Benjamin. Who else did you say was attached to this? I think, yeah, it was like Richard Benjamin came afterwards because I believe that with Hill, they were actually uh, at a point where production was going to get was going to get going. And uh, the draft of the script that I have is I believe it's the third draft and I believe it's marked as a production draft. So this was like one that they were going to get ready to shoot with and they were apparently getting uh, sets built at that time. Something that happened was that there was uh, a bit of a quarrel between uh, Walter Hill and Beatty because uh, Beatty had a deal where he w- he wanted to be very much involved in uh, the dailies. Like he wanted to go to the dailies and be like, OK, don't use that shot. Use this one. And Hill was very, very much against that. He was think- I think he was. You know, rightfully being the director saying like, oh, that's my job. Like, I'll decide which takes are good. And with somebody and with somebody like Beatty, who's a director himself, I think that he was really wanted to be a part of that process as well. And then also they did have a clash over what the style of the movie would be, because Hill was the one that was wanting dark and gritty and basically something I would say just like the untouchables, while Beatty was the one that was trying to push for something more colorful and how the movie ended up being. And I think that that's why that it it took so long from about like the 80s up until the 90s to get the movie produced, because Beatty actually uh, in their early 70s or in the late 70s, when the project was kind of getting going at first, he got a first look deal. Which means that uh, any time that any producer or anybody that has the rights for the character, they would actually have to go to him first and ask if he would be interested in doing it. And I think that there was a lot of pressure to try to get him attached to it. But the deal was is that he was uh, trying to get involved in other movies at the time. Like he's trying to make the Bugsy movie at that time. And he was trying to make Reds at that time. And he was actually trying to make a uh, Howard Hughes movie at that time. And as we see now, he's just finally got around to making it. So you see how long these uh, processes for these movies go for a while. So I think that he was just kind of interested in doing it at one point. And then he's like, well, I'm kind of interested in doing this other project. So just kind of hold it off for, for now. And then maybe I'll come back to it and, I think it finally got to a point where they thought that, well, Beatty's going to, he'll do Ishitar and then we'll just continue on with it. And I think that by the time Dick Benjamin was directing, that's when they were told that they had to make a smaller budgeted film because I believe at that point Universal had left and uh, it was just stuck with Paramount. So that's kind of when the movie started to become more familiar with the one we did now because the initial drafts of the movie actually opened with a sequence where a criminal is holding uh, the mayor hostage and he wants Tracy to take his place. So they get on the two-way wrist radio and they contact him at the uh, opera house to tell him to come down and take care of this, uh, take care of this uh, business with the mayor. And basically what happens is that he drives down there, he gets into the building, and then he tricks the villain into giving him up. And then, and then he goes back to the opera house and says, oh, just just a little uh, trouble downtown, no problem. And that was supposed to be the opening scene of the movie. And I'm not sure if that's, if that's a reason that they cut it for costs. But also I think that probably by the time that they were getting down to 
that particular version, that's when Robocop came out, and they had a very similar scene in that one. Yeah, I think that's the the version that I've read. And yeah, as soon as that scene happened, I was just like, oh, okay, this is just like RoboCop. You know, I'm surprised the guy hasn't isn't demanding a car with really bad gas mileage. And I want a bigger office. And I want a new car. And I want the city to pay for it all. What kind of car, Miller? Something with reclining leather seats that goes really fast and gets really shitty gas mileage. How about the six thousand SUX? Yeah. Okay, sure. What about cruise control? Does it come with cruise control? Ain't no problem, Miller. Let the mayor go. We'll even throw in a blob pump. But what's interesting about uh, in RoboCop was that Ed Newmeyer said that that was inspired by the Harvey Milk incident. And and that's what I was thinking at first with this one. I was like, oh, I wonder if that was something that was inspired by that. But I doubt that it was. But it was it was just an interesting way that 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 movie opened up with that particular scene. And then kind of and kind of how they began to revise things kind of made sense because in the scripts you would have like the scene where at Tracy's apartment where the uh, where Junior Tracy is going to uh, apparently get taken away by the orphanage. Now, how that scene plays out in the script is that there actually is somebody from the orphanage that's there to take him out, uh, take him away. But what happens is that when he runs away, they kind of have a whole scene of him kind of lamenting over, oh, well, Tracy was the only nice guy to me, and I walked out on him, and that wasn't a nice thing to do. So he tries to go back to his apartment, and then he sees that he's getting taken away by the bad guys to go see Big Boy. Now, it's kind of nice in in a screenplay sense of being like, okay, well, we don't really need that extra two or three minutes of him lamenting over that. It's like, well, let's just tighten it up so it's like, okay, uh, we'll have the villains tr- uh, trick him into thinking that they're from the orphanage, and then we'll and then we can carry the scene that way. And then uh, some of the other things that they had deleted in the script by that time, just for I think just for cost sake, was that uh, there was a lot uh, was that there was a whole scene uh, between. Tracy, Tess, and Junior, where they're going out to a baseball game, and with that one, you're uh, and that whole scene was supposed to show that Tess Trueheart isn't all just a isn't just a girly girl. She's actually kind of a tomboy, and she uh, displays a lot of knowledge about baseball and. And at one point, instead of her throwing the baseball into the garbage, she throws a rock in, into the garbage and she takes like a whole pitcher stance and everything. So there was more of her more of a sense of toughness about that character. And that was something that uh, Epps had uh, lamented over was that he didn't like the way that the character was ultimately portrayed in the final movie because they felt that she was too much of a compared to Breathless Mahoney. She was. Just kind of a, you know, just it, it, like like the whole scene where she comes in, it walks in on him, and then she just kind of goes in the room and cries about it. But in the script, she was, you know, she was acting kind of more tougher on Tracy, where she's like, oh, cool on this, and she hands him the ice cream. And, and I guess that's just one of those things that probably by the time it got to film, it's like, oh, well, maybe it'd be, maybe we should show how uh, softer she is compared to, you know, the, you know, compared to Breathless by kind of, she, making her a little bit more vulnerable. And he just thought that that was something that felt like a mistake. And when I did read that script, I was always thinking like, Oh, well this kind of like, Oh, this would have been a different approach to the character. Cause you kind of see that they can almost have it both ways where it's like early in the movie where she tells the kid, do you want a broken arm when she, when he tries to steal the cash? So it's like, Oh, well we're trying to set up. She's kind of a tougher character. But then later on, we just kind of see like, Oh, she's kind of softer here. So that's kind of an imbalance that they kind of had there 
at first, but yeah, and that's like one of the things that when you read those drafts of the script, you're like, oh, well, that's a lot nicer. That at first she had a lot more, you know, toughness more about her. Somebody that you felt like that could be stand up next to uh, to Breathless Mahoney instead of just somebody that's like, oh, oh, Breathless is here. I'm gonna go in the other room and cry about it. <laughs> and so, how did it finally come back to? Warren Beatty to be the director of this. I think it was mainly because of the way Ishitar ended up, and I think at that point he was he felt that he needed something really commercial to do, something that would make money, and I think he just uh, managed to go back to that particular uh, project because he he genuinely did care about the character of Dick Tracy, and he was really interested in bringing that to life, and and I think that he was saying that when he was a when he was a kid he remembered his mom he fondly remembered his mom actually reading the comic book to him before he learned how to read so there was a little bit of nostalgia on his part to take it also i think that he felt that well it's a lot safer to be just in a yellow hat and a trench coat than when he apparently was up for the role of superman where apparently he said that he actually tried on a blue uh leotard and he looked at himself in the mirror and he said i can't do this so I think it was like, oh, you know, I want to be in a hit movie, and I'd like to be in something that's uh, of this sort. But it's a lot safer to be in something like Dick Tracy, where you know all you gotta do is just wear the hat and wear the coats and and shoot a Tommy gun, and and you're all set. I'm not sure if you ever heard that he actually wanted to have uh, the character's uh, hook nose that he has in the comic. But ultimately, the makeup artists talked him out of it because they reminded him, well. Well, let's uh, remember that you're also the director, so you have to get up a lot earlier in the morning each night, each day to come in here and get into makeup, and then you have to direct in that all day. And also they felt that, well, if you try to put a bunch of makeup all over your face, it's going to distort who you are. And, you know, with somebody like Warren Beatty, when you see his face, you know that's him. And <laughs> now, I'm just, now I'm just kind of reminded of... Uh, I'm just kind of reminded. Of, I just watched The Shadow the other day, and you know how they put all that makeup on uh, Alec Baldwin's face, where you get to see him with like the chin and the nose and everything, and you look at it and you're like, "Oh God, I am so glad you didn't do the whole movie looking like that," because it's it is distracting. It's like you know sometimes it's like, "Oh, we want to go for comic book accuracy or or being very accurate to that," but sometimes when you look at that, you're just like. You're like that. That makeup is distracting, and I guess he. I guess he was acting like he wanted more of a square jaw, and he wanted like and a hook and and the hook nose. But I kind of feel like if they would have really brought that to life, it, it like I said, it just would have been distracting, like how it was with Alec Baldwin. <laughs> when did you get interested in the Dick Tracy movie? I was born in 89. The movie came out when I was a year old, and I had an older brother. Basically, whatever he was into, I got into. And he's three years older than me, so he would have been four when the movie came out, you know, and he ate it up. He, he you know, he was, he was a big fan of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Batman. And, of course, naturally, when Dick Tracy came out, that was like the next big thing to come out. My appeal to it was that uh, when I started to actually read the credits for movies, like when I could I, I understand what they were saying, when there would be a credit that would say, based upon the characters or based upon the comic book by, to me, that let me knew that this was more than just a movie. And I felt, and I took it upon myself to actually 
find the source material. With something like Batman, that was easy because Batman's a character that's been going on for, I think we just got past 75 years of the character, and there's always something there to read, you know, there's always a comic book somewhere or a book to find. Uh, but with Dick Tracy, you couldn't just go to the news rack and say, oh, give me one of those Dick Tracy comic books. And and the uh, comic strip wasn't in my local newspaper, so I couldn't read anything at that point. But I did find at the library a lot of Chester Gould's work. And I remember actually reading the celebrated cases of Dick Tracy and actually reading like his origin story, which I was like, oh, this is nice because in the movie they don't touch upon that at all. But if you read the novelization, that's by Maxon Collins, who did the Dick Tracy comic strip during the uh, 70s and 80s until uh, it closed up in the 90s. He uh, actually integrated all of the history of the of the comic into the novelization, which apparently there was a kind of a little bit of a quarrel over that as well, because uh, he would subsequently rewrite a lot of scenes as they appeared in the, in the script or as they were performed. Apparently the filmmakers were so taken by that, that they actually went back and reshot and added in ADR stuff from his novelization, uh, including the scene that involves uh, Tess Trueheart's mother, where she says, Oh, it takes a lot of understanding to know a man like that. Where originally he, she was very, uh, she was very negative about him. And when they asked uh, Collins, "Well, why did you rewrite the scene to be so different?" He says, "Well, it didn't make sense to me that uh, Mrs. Trueheart would be so brash towards Dick Tracy, who decided to become a cop to avenge her husband's death." And also just kind of the way that uh, if you ever get the chance to read, I'm not sure if you ever got a chance to read it, but if you do, it is a really good read because it does expand out the story a lot nicer. And one of the cool things that they did about it was that they kind of heightened the mystery of the blank character where everybody is really uptight about this character coming in because they're all thinking that it's this guy who escaped from Alcatraz named Frank Redrum, who they think is like, you know, they're just like, Oh, he's, he's not a, he's not a cool guy to, you know, to be on the wrong side of the tracks with it's, you know, there's a lot of agitation over this character. And then it kind of, it, because kind of in the movie, they're just like, Oh, who's this guy? You know, Oh, there's this guy with no face that killed him. Oh, well I want him dead. And, you know, there's real no mystery around like, oh, it's a guy with no face. But with that one, they heightened it up so that at the end of the movie, when it's revealed to be Breathless Mahoney, you were, you're thinking the whole time that, oh, it's supposed to be this character. But then it ends up being a, uh, it ends up being a different character. It kind of heightened the surprise a little bit better. It's interesting because I had read that Max Allen Collins was not a fan of the script when he first read it. What he was thinking with it was that he he treated it a lot more seriously than uh, how it ended up in in the screenplay. And I guess I don't blame him in the earlier drafts of it. I think it was that third draft that Walter Hill was working on. This script is actually taking place during Prohibition, so instead of everybody, so instead of uh, Pruneface saying I wouldn't be caught dead in a place that permitted gambling, he says I wouldn't be caught dead in a place that permitted booze. What happens at one point is that after they arrest uh, Big Boy Caprice, they take him to where uh, like a lot of uh, big barrels of moonshine are being made, and they come in and they bust it through. And at one point, Dick Tracy takes a tin cup 
and he takes a, a vat, uh, goes into a vat that's spilling it out after they punched it open. He fills it up, and he takes a swig of it, and he goes, hey, this stuff ought to be legal. So, so I guess I, I could probably kind of see him reading stuff like that and just going like, oh, well, why would he do that? Like, well, why would this character who why would this character want to involve himself in something like that? And I think that just his overall feeling of it was that I feel like that this should be something that should be treated as seriously as something like Kiss Me Deadly or, or film noir type of movies at that time. And I think that's just kind of the movie that he was picturing. And what would really be interesting is reading his apparent first draft of the supposed novelization of Dick Tracy, where he just apparently when he just he pretty much just wrote his own version of the movie and i guess before he got too far disney got on him saying like hey you need to stick to the script or you know or else we're going to have to let you go so he had to pretty much scramble to go back to the script and write it accordingly to how it was written in the script rather than going off on his own story it's like it'd be nice if one day that that could be released, and I'm not sure if it's because I think he has a he he has one of those special li- uh, one of those libraries that has a special collection, and I think that that particular uh, draft of the novel is included in that, and I think that that would be the only way to to re- uh, to read it. But it, it would be interesting one day to check it out just to see what what more that he had in mind with that because i'm I'm not sure if it, in the interviews that you read with uh that you heard with him but what it was was that he had gotten the script w- when it was in its early drafts because he was the writer at that time and they wanted him to be a consultant on it and he gave and he talked about like oh it's campy and you know it's it's not it's not it doesn't seem quite in line with the with the comics that they're trying to emulate which if you read some of those they are pretty gritty and violent almost on the edge of being a Quentin Tarantino movie in terms of violence you know at one point somebody gets their head impaled by a flag and just yeah there's you know there is some and I think that's just more of the movie that he had in mind for something for 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 something like that instead of just kind of instead of kind of what comic books were conceived at that time it's like oh make it colorful and make it make it more you know kind of campy or like oh let's have instead of having big boy be this menacing character like how like how uh, robert de niro played uh, al pacino in the untouchables like in the script they like say like oh he wears like a like a clash of colors and he has like a big panama hat so he was a lot so it seemed like in this in those early drafts he was a lot more flamboyant than what he ended up being in the final movie with uh with al pacino so with your research when did they first start talking about doing a sequel to Dick Tracy? Was it fairly immediate, or did it take a little while? The date that I have on these treatments for the sequels was actually in August of 1989. So that would have been right around the time that Dick Tracy was either shooting or just about ready to finish. Now for Dick Tracy 2, what they had uh, in mind is that is that it's set during 1942, World War II is raging on, and Dick Tracy is turned down to be in the military due to injuries he sustained on his job and having a case of flat feet. Also, during all this, Tracy is struggling with the thought about how marriage is going to affect the rest of his life, 
And at police headquarters, Pat Patton has succeeded Chief Brandon, making uh, Sam Catchum uh, Tracy's sole partner, which reflects how it was in the comics, where eventually Pat Patton took over the chief of police job. Now, the plot kicks in with Tracy eventually getting a call from the War Department in Washington pertaining to a top-secret domestic affair with the Air Force who feared that uh, the world-famous inventor Carl Norton has been kidnapped and his plans for a specialized bombing site capable of high-altitude pinpoint accuracy for daytime bombing of Germany's industrial targets has been compromised, endangering the lives of enlisted men and thousands of civilians. Tracy uh, quickly agrees to be a part of the action and is appointed by the president himself as a special detective in the Air Force and is immediately on the case, taking lead from surrounding munitions plants and shipyards. The Brown and and Pruneface are the ones that are holding Norton prisoner, and they plan to sell him to the Nazis for millions of dollars. And their plan is to secretly uh, ship Norton across the country, and they would rendezvous with a a German U-boat that will transport them to the fatherland. And then uh, the movie was supposed to finally end with uh, Tracy and Tess finally getting married in this big glory ceremony. And then that would be the end of the first sequel. So that one would be set during the 1940s and would have a a World War II uh, espionage ring going on. For the third movie, what they had in mind for that one was that it would be set during the 1950s. As it's detailed, is that uh, Tracy and Trueheart are living a quiet life in the suburbs where it was described that Dick Tracy would be seen wearing a Hawaiian T-shirt around the house and that he would be a much more lethargic person than he was previously. And Junior Tracy is dating a homely girl making everything seem fine for the family that he's finally established, uh, you know, that started off in the first film and then had him in the second film. And then finally in the third film, he's got his family. And this all changes when the antagonists of this uh, story were going to be a gang of beat poets called the Bebop Gang. I don't think that there was any uh, particular villains of this sort. With it, Tracy and Junior are kind of at odds at each other because of the clash of uh, culture. So I believe at this time this would make him more of a uh, kind of somebody that's in his late teens, almost to early 20s by this point. And so he's kind of hanging out with these criminals that are just supposedly beat poets in a, that are uh, hiding out in a coffee shop. Uh, some of the characters that were included uh, and uh, two of the characters that they were supposed to be in it were called Goatee and Downbeat. But uh, the main villains that they were going to have in this one were Flattop Jr. and Breathless Mahoney's daughter, Heartless Mahoney. And also details that they had in it was that they wanted to have Mumbles at one point do a uh, slam poetry session <laughs> at one point. And so I was like, oh, that would have been interesting if they actually would have gotten Dustin Hoffman back to do that. And they wanted uh, Tracy at one point to go undercover uh, to have a goatee and beat some bongos. <laughs> and so that was so. The, so for the third one, obviously for that one, it was just going to be a lot more lower key than the uh, World War Two espionage going on. And the uh, writers had no intentions and no interest at all in the uh, so-called space era of the Dick Tracy comic strips. That was actually one of the things uh, between Cash and Epps that kind of 
made them re- reluctant to do it at first because Jim Cash was uh, somebody that was familiar with Dick Tracy. And he was saying, oh, this would be a fantastic opportunity. We should take it. And Epps uh, was reluctant because he was only familiar with the character's space era where they had moon maids and Dick Tracy flew around in a space coupe. And he thought that that's what Dick Tracy was all about. And he says, no, no, no. It was actually a very violent comic strip back in the 30s you know it's it's elliot ness and al capone you know there's a you know there's a lot of fun we could have with this Epps was like okay well we'll do if you feel this passionate about this one then let's go ahead and do it years later when they got the opportunity to write top gun Epps was the one that was really interested in doing it and cash was the one that was reluctant to to write a story about uh air force pilots eventually they got to the point where they're like okay well since uh you said yes to dick tracy i'll say yes to top gun so that's how those two came about. so like that's how those two movies co- came about between those two writers who uh as i've read in the press kit material that they li- both lived apart and that the only way that they conversed with each other on their projects was through uh, telephone calls and also the uh, in, in an early email system. So, so it was interesting how those. So it was interesting how like that ri- particular writing duo they they lived apart and they still managed to uh, make stuff like this happen. Now I, w- I do have to ask, how did you get your hands on these uh, treatments for the second two films? This was uh, part of uh, part of my research, and I actually uh, called and I actually called up the uh, Michigan State Library to provide me with the treatments that I could uh, that I could read and study and study about. What do you know about the uh, reappearance of Warren Beatty as Dick Tracy in that uh, 2010 special that he did with uh, Leonard Malton? As far as I know, and kind of from what I've read, is that it just seemed like that that was just kind of a, a legal way of showing that he had been working on something with the character so that he wouldn't lose the rights for the character. Because apparently he's, uh, I'm not quite sure how the deal of it worked out, but I guess apparently when everything was signed, he basically had screen rights for, for the character for an infinite amount of time. As long as he showed some sort of evidence or some something that would show that, oh, he wasn't just sitting on the project. And apparently with that one, if uh, I think that that one just made the requirement so that it showed that, yes, you still own the rights for the character and it hasn't reverted back to the Tribune. Because I remember like that seemed like that that was starting to really get into seemed to get hot and heavy when I think the CW at one point or if it was a CW at that point, we're actually trying to say that we're going to start a we want to do a Dick Tracy television series. And then apparently Beatty you know chimed in and said like oh well, you don't have any right to do that i still have the rights for it and that's kind of when that whole uh legal battle started and it and it ended up that Beatty still owns the rights and we still don't have uh any sort of new dick tracy to go off of and it's both something that you understand but you still kind of wish that something would be done with the character because it would be fun to see like a new film or or what I would really like to see is an animated series out of it, because I think that that would be the best realm for, for that particular character, because the world is so vast, and what, to try to sustain it in one movie is a little bit difficult, especially nowadays. 
but then on the other hand, you're just like, well, maybe it's good because he's trying to uh, he's 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 very, he he cares very much about the character and the property, and he doesn't want a situation where somebody does it and no, you know, and it turns out to be very lackluster or or something like the uh, Sci-Fi Channel's version of Flash Gordon. Which, like, when they first announced that, you were thinking, like, oh, my God, they're going to do a Flash Gordon television series? Like, oh, the, that, that, you know, they got plenty of good material to work off of. That should, you know, how could you screw this up? And then you saw it, and just the way that they treated Mongo and and their approach to it was just like, oh, that, you know, if you, if you would have just stuck to the material, you could have had something a little bit more memorable. But, and I think that, and I think that was something like, uh, with, like with Dick Tracy, you probably would have had like a similar feel to it where it's like, oh, well, well, the character's flat top, but he's only called flat top because we gave him a flat top haircut. He doesn't look like the character in the comic strip or like Pruneface is just like this really old guy, and you know, it's, and that's just kind of like part of the deal where you're just like, and then just kind of part of you is just a little bit like, well, is it Dick Tracy if it doesn't look the way it does in the comic strip, and and also how it does in the movie, you know, with the colors, and because that because always is kind of like a hard thing about that where you're always just like, yeah, how do you get around the the whole uh, the whole primary color situation with it where, you know, cause, because when you look at him, uh, when you look at Dick Tracy, you know, it's Dick Tracy because he has the yellow hat and, and jacket and everything. And, beca- but if it's like, if it's just like a, if it's just like a character and just like a normal coat and hat and stuff, it, 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 it just, uh, it just feels like it's just something more generic than Tracy itself. Tracy to kids, Tracy to kids, come in kids. We are back. Thank you to Mr. Roberts, Ms. Headley, and Mr. Campling for taking the time to talk to me. You'll be able to hear more from Ms. Headley on our upcoming episodes on Dr. Detroit and Making Mr. Right. You get all kinds of great stuff. Wow, Dr. Detroit. Detroit. There's another one. Hell yes. (laughs) Headley, I believe, replaced Sean Young in the Tess Trueheart does Sean Young get replaced in everything? Well, there you go. There's another connection between, other than Elfman, there's another connection between Batman and uh, and Dick Tracy. I believe Sean Young was briefly cast as Tess Trueheart. It's funny because uh, you bring that up because as I was watching Dick Tracy again yesterday, I was actually thinking of not Batman, but Batman Returns, mm-hmm. the way that Catwoman kind of vacillates between being good and being bad and wanting to be good and all these kind of things. And even the way that she takes down the Christopher Walken character, I was kind of reminded of uh, Batman Returns as I was watching Dick Tracy. So, uh, of course, I think it's just playing with familiar tropes, but Mm -hmm. it was interesting to me that, you know, the whole idea of, of 
breathless and the blank and everything. And I have to geek out just a little bit here because as I'm watching Dick Tracy and whenever the blank is on screen and she's got this kind of voice modulator, the only thing I could do was think about Bausch or Boosh. I can't remember how you say the character's <laughs> name. The, the bounty hunter. hunter from yes. Back. <laughs> from Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Who's trying to get uh, <laughs> I was just like, that's the exact same voice modulator. I kept thinking like all those little lines that she has as she's got the thermal detonator and stuff. So. How long since you took a look in your attic, big boy? Just relax for a moment. You're free of the carbonite. You have hibernation sickness. So we talked a little bit about this before. The, the project goes all the way back. Well, I'm sure people... You know, talked about doing a revival of Dick Tracy for years and years. There had been the serials, there had been the comic, or there had been the the movies. There had been oh, there the was even one um, uh, William Dozier, the producer of Batman, the the, the Adam West Batman, de- developed a Dick Tracy series. Yeah, which was what in the sixty-eight, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's a pilot floating around somewhere, or, or what they would call a presentation, shorter than a pilot. Yeah, and I, I think there's a copy of that out on Daily Motion. I'll be sure to, to link to that over at our website when this thing goes up. But I want to say Beatty was talking about doing this all the way back in the shampoo days, not back in like 1975 he wanted to get this off the, the ground, which would have actually predated the Superman movie, yeah. would have predated the uh, Little Orphan Annie movie, the mm-hmm. Popeye movie. And it's just funny to me how these things kind of, travel in cycles you know because by the time it finally did come out it was like there had been at least you know and one wave and then the other wave was just starting up with like batman and now dick tracy and then we're gonna have the shadow and or the uh, phantom with billy zane the phantom yes <laughs> right. well a year later after after dick tracy i guess disappointed disney i mean you read conflicting things about how much money it made but a year later i think they released a comic book film that works a little better than Dick Tracy does, and that's The Rocketeer. But it's funny, because so I read that Dick Tracy, what was, uh, I read a budget of like, not quite $50 million, and it, it made three times that much, and then The Rocketeer, in its initial re- release at least, it tanked at the box office. Yeah. People just stayed away in droves. I and know. It didn't have any stars in it. But I think The Rocketeer works better. It does. No, we covered The Rocketeer a couple months ago, and I say that, that that movie holds up better than Dick Tracy, but I think just in general, it's a, it's a tighter film, and it yeah. really is put together. They're an interesting pair. I was asking if he was talking about uh, Jennifer Connelly. Quite a pair? Yeah. Oh, no, no. I meant, I meant the two films together. Just, just that they're, And I saw them both in theaters, and they're just both very pretty to look at. Yeah, they captured that other era both in their own ways yeah but i mean we've seen other films that have played with color palettes like this or you know in similar ways i mean when i think of uh i mean it's more of a pastel film but i would think of something like uh, umbrellas Cherbourg has a very particular mm-hmm. look to it when it comes to the use of color and everything and this one it's just so you know like the uh, just very stark when it comes to the the reds the yellows the greens all these things it's and very saturated Oh yeah, and God, yeah, it's just it's it's it really is candy for the eye. It is just such a, a treat to feast on Dick Tracy. Well, I mean, it's it's not every comic book movie that's shot by Vittorio Storaro, who you know <laughs> who shot Last Tango in Paris and, and the Last Emperor, and Apocalypse Roberto Now, Lucci, 
for Bertolucci. I mean, it's, it's a, this is a high-class, high-gloss, you know, uh, top-shelf production team that's that's making this comic book movie. You know, I talked in the Apocalypse Now episode, you know, there's that whole um, phrase, every frame of painting, and there are so many moments in Dick Tracy where it's just like, yep, I could just take this still, blow it up, and put it on my wall. You know, yeah. just this there's so many moments like that and there are so many moments where it just seems to be all in camera too i know that they use a lot of of paintings especially when we're talking about the city scenes and everything the cityscapes i should say but when you come to you know just moments of like tracy coming at the camera with that red background and that yellow coat that he's got on with that stark black uh band across the yellow hat i mean that looks fantastic yeah. it looks so good if you're a just, fan of primary colors, this is your movie. There's a lot to like about it. I mean, like I feel about it the way I feel about Burton, Burton's Batman films that the narratives don't make any sense. But uh, but it's it's they're you know they're gorgeous to just sit and stare at. Don't you think, Frank, that the narrative not making sense is also very indicative of films of the era that it's trying to provoke? So you know you go back and watch The Big Sleep, and you know ultimately it doesn't really make any sense, although. There's there's certainly a beginning, middle, and end, but when you go I back suppose. and think about it, yeah, I mean, I I just uh, well, I mean, Batman Returns had problems with the Writers Guild strike, and and I always, as a writer, and maybe it's just it's just uh, it's because I'm a writer, but I always I, I always suspect that something's going on behind the scenes where pages are being torn out of the script. As soon as I see a <laughs> narrative, you look at the you look at the Nolan films, the Batman films, and the stories hang together very well, but not so in the Burton films, which are pretty. And have all that great Anton, especially the first one, Anton first production design and Bo Welch on the second film. But I, I, they, they're hard to follow. Look at them again. I think the same thing is true for Dick Tracy. Really, when you come to like the look of it and everything, like you would see things like the the third and and fourth Batman movies almost aping that look you know trying to do that let's be a, a comic strip rather than a comic book i would say but let's try to be a comic strip look and feel and really trying to do i think what dick tracy ultimately did so much better so i, I think that's yet another reason why the schumacher batman films fail but you know again i think that's what they were attempting to do was to now infuse the films with these primary colors, but it was just melded so poorly onto the world that Burton had already created that if you were to take, you know, other than the Danny Elfman score, you're not getting uh, uh, too many um, things that really were, were going to work well between Batman's world and Dick Tracy's world. Batman came first, and I think that was really an attempt to uh, take comic books and adapt them into a real world scenario what would they look like if they were real world whereas dick tracy is very much trying to adapt the form and the the style of comic strips into a moving image uh i think actually a better and what happened with the subsequent batman films if they tried to then back off that reality a little bit and make it bigger and more colorful is that it, there was a discordance there and i think that's a really interesting point i haven't i God help me, I haven't gone back to watch those uh, Schumacher Batman films at all. Don't do it. But, but I think what might be a more interesting parallel is, and this is another film that I happen to be really fond of that other people don't like, is Hulk by Ang Lee, where he's trying to bring in the, the frames within the frames and create splash pages or you know different 
uh, framing within frames like you would see on a comic book page. So trying to adapt the form to moving images as well as the content. I thought that was an interesting, I admired him. Excuse me, I admire that uh, Ang Lee's attempt to do that. I thought that was an interesting experiment. By the way, I can't let this stand. I don't think that Batman was any attempt at real world. You know, mm. to me, it was more. I mean, I would say Superman was more real world when it sure. came to the '78 kind of thing. But to me, Batman was much more of you know uh, an expressionistic world. I would say that that's the same kind of world that Caligari would live in, rather than <laughs> you know. Uh, like mom and pop Kent kind of thing. So I don't know. I, I, I it's an over stylized world, which is what I appreciated about it. I thought that they did that so well, just bringing that kind of German sensibility to the screen. And that's what I think that, you know, again, couldn't reconcile with the, the kind of cotton candy world that Schumacher wanted to explore. You know, it's like <laughs> there isn't a ray of sunlight in a Caligari world, you know, <laughs> it's just shadow and canted angles. You know, you, you, you can't just suddenly start, you know, coloring things green and yellow and purple inside of there. I mean, you can tint the frame, you can do that, but oh, that yeah, that's about it. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> well, if your listeners like Beatty, I would also recommend Bullworth. Which is a movie, another movie that he directed that I think is a, you know a little bit more consistently sure-handed. One that doesn't get a lot of credit. Nope, nope, nope. It's great, great screenplay by Jeremy Pixer, and uh, and a movie he didn't direct that I watched again recently, which is just so goddamn good, and that is the Parallax View. Oh yeah. So there's I two. That one. I echo your sentiments on both of those. If you're in a baby mood. Yeah, those are fantastic. And and to your point earlier, uh, Jared, I still really like Heaven Can Wait. I like Heaven Can Wait. It's good. So yeah. we'll be, I mean, he's we'll a guy, he's, a, he's an artist you have to admire. He's been uncompromising. I mean, Reds is a very good film. He, he's he's had a lot of, made a lot of films to be proud of. So this is and only have, the first in a series of Beatty podcasts, right? Have yeah, any of seen Town and Country? I kind of stayed away from that one. I, I think I only saw parts of that, yeah. Okay. Again, that was probably within the time we were working at the theater. I think uh, I was in and out of that. Never had the pleasure, but I'm curious about it. All right, so let's go ahead and take another break and play a trailer for next week's show. I want this car. Jonathan Miller would never do anything to break the law. I need the keys. Thank you. Bye. He is a very fine, very honest gentleman. Something strange is happening to some ordinary people. Yeah, that's Jack. Real nice man. What do you do, rob a bank? He's a law-abiding taxpayer, minding his own business. Killed 12 people, wounded 23 more, stole six cars, most of them Ferraris. If anybody deserves to go that way, sure in the hell's him. homicide for 13 years now. I have never seen anything like this. You trying to tell me that she's part of this? Step out of the car slow. I want answers, and I want them now. Explanation won't help you. I want to know why it takes 15 shots to take down some sold-out stripper. Why three law-abiding citizens all of a sudden go crazy and start killing people? We talking spacemen here? 
something gets in his way, he kills it. Finds a body, gets inside, uses it to move around. Try for one on the tire. But you think this is easy? Why don't you try? As a career in the police didn't really prepare you for this, did it? The Hidden. You think it's over now? You're wrong. That's right. We will be back next week with a look at The Hidden. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Jared and Frank. Jared, last time we spoke was a few weeks before the big Nitrate Film Festival in Rochester. How did that go, sir? Uh, it went fantastically well. We uh, Again, we kept the lineup of films hidden until the day it was released, but we did manage to fit in our first silent Nitrate film. It was a print of Ramona from 1928. It was actually a German release print that came to us via uh, Goss Filmafond in Russia. So it it was a a long time getting to Rochester, but I think that was really the standout of the festival. We saved that till last. It was something we called Blind Date with Nitrate. So nobody knew it was coming, and uh, it was the reaction to it was was just astounding it it made us feel so good but we are doing that again next year may 5th through 7th Uh, we expect tickets to go on sale in december so if you are longing to spend a weekend with nitrate films being put on a screen uh, we will be there for you also i will be seeing mike again in november or it's it's october this year uh, october yeah noircon uh, I'll be presenting a film directed by Oren Shai called The Frontier. Uh, he's working to, to find a distributor right now, but it's another sort of throwback, uh, very much uh, 50s and 70s influenced uh, film. Uh, I'll be doing an interview with him after the film, and that's going to be at the Temple Library. That's uh, That's going to be great. If you want to find more about uh, what I think about Dick Tracy, all you have to do is go to Mike's site and pick up Cashier's to Cinemart number 18. And I've got a little uh, essay in there about Dick Tracy if you want to read more. And Frank, what's been keeping you out of trouble lately? I'm working too much. But the podcast is uh, is cooking and uh, heating up, and we just uh, we just found out there's going to be an, uh, a piece about us in Vanity Fair, which we're thrilled Ooh, about. Nice. And, um, yeah, what started as a labor of love has become a lot of work and taken over my life. I wouldn't know anything about that. I know you do. I'm very proud of the show. We're off for the summer. We won't be recording for the summer, but we have eight episodes in the can. So, um, Lee Grant and Matthew Broderick and Jessica Walter and some other shows I'm very proud of. So, uh, it's, it's an ongoing oral history of show business. It's funny. I just sent a physical letter to Lee Grant the other day asking for an interview. Oh, she's lovely. I'll hook you up with her assistant. Oh, that would be fantastic. I'll trade you a Lee Grant for a Floyd Mutrix. What can I get for a Pendulette? <laughs> you want Pendulette? I want Pendulette. Oh, that's easy. Uh, right, get Pen's information. Fantastic. And never met an interview he didn't like. You heard it here, folks. Pendulette on the well, projection. I can't, I can't promise, but we've had it. We've had him twice. Penn's the best. I love Penn. And you can ask him about Penn and Teller get killed and Arthur Penn. 
I want to do that whole uh, movie as an episode. I can't wait to talk about it. You guys are doing great, great stuff over there. I have to say. Oh, thank you. It's 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 an immense amount of work, but I'm. It's the best thing I've ever done. I'm very proud of, to be part of it. And then you're doing tons of, of TV work still. I write uh, some comedy for a show that's not a comedy show. The View. I write <laughs> I write teases for uh, you know when when guests are coming up and they say, "Hey, I'm Morgan Freeman and I'm coming up next," and then you know, and I write a little twenty seconds of funny. Oh, very nice. I just did one with Eddie Izzard and one with um, Nathan Lane and one with um, Lionel Richie. And so that's fun. And uh, and then I, I do some other things on the side. I write some award shows and some roasts and I'm making a short. And I'm just trying to keep busy. I'm just I'm just happy to be working. Where's the best place for people to keep up with you? Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast uh, on iTunes and SoundCloud and GilbertPodcast.com or my website, ComedyWise.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on the show, guys. Thanks, Thank to you, everybody. Mike. It was, an, it was an honor and a lot of fun. Well, yeah, I'm glad that we could finally do this. We've been talking about it for a while now. Let's do an entire Charlie Cosmo episode next time. <laughs> I'll see if I can get him. I reached out to him, but I, I had no <laughs> luck. So I guess I just need to lobby harder. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more information about this week's episode, as well as a link to our Patreon page, where you can make a little donation, get early access to every episode of the Projection Booth. That's just a little bit of thanks for helping us to take over the world. I'd work you over for 50 cents, Charlie. You're just lucky I don't have any hardware with me. Darn lucky, I tell you. It was gambling that brought the rising star of mobs, the big boy Caprice to Zenith, and brought crime buster Dick Tracy onto his scent. Caprice has made his bones in the small-time extortion and protection rackets on the south side, and it prosecuted his vendettas with a ruthless tenacity that earned him a reputation for cunning, murderous unpredictability, and an unwillingness to forgive that was remarkable even on that seamy side of town. Business owners who failed to cop up big boys' exorbitant demands for tribute were hastily extinguished. And many a small-time operator learned the hard way with the mob, not Webster, meant by territory, a school lesson that ended with a student dressed in a pair of cement overshoes. Dick Tracy, look out, crooks, you better break out. Cause Tracy's chillin' on a stakeout. He's in town, and he's hunting big boy Caprice. Tracy's on the C-A-S-C, it's no win if you think about doing crime. Tracy, have you doing time? Word. When he's dealing with hoods like flat top, he rolls solo, he doesn't need a backup cop. He just talks in the radio that's on his wrist. Pat Patton, no hook him up quick. He makes his move, and suckers is in his way, but pay. Dick Tracy don't play. Caprice would scratch, claw, double cross, and slaughter his way to the top of an ugly heap. And by the time he was there, his greedy eye would wander to the spoils of natural control of the racket. He was surrounded by a round-the-clock assortment of goons, pimps, shills, confident strixes, flim-flam men, and later-jawed gunmen who responded to his deadly urge. Dick Tracy, a real man, no phony. He better watch out for breathless Mahoney. Cause this girl's sexy and I'm talking about super hot. And she's working on Tracy's soft spot. Test too hard is the one he's in love with. Gotta keep a cool head so he don't flip. But Tracy's too tough for that. He gotta get cool face numbers in the rodent pack. Influencing the thugs at the wrist, understand. The Tracy don't quit till he gets his man. And I'm talking about them. Dick Tracy's in effect again. By degrees, his empire grew. An empire that fashioned itself into an unseemly replica of a king's court, where a jester could be put to death with a slow wake of a Neapolitan eyelid. At a whim, he could bring a whole neighborhood to its knees, with a particularly unpleasant visit from one of his squads of Amici di Amici, or friends of friends. The territory he came to control with an iron hand was not called the Carnival of Death for nothing, and Big Boy Caprice had given his sobriquet a vicious ring many times over. It seemed that nothing would stop him. Big 
T-O-P, I'm the J-O-B, so don't M-E-S-S with T-R-A-C, why? Cause they did a rock the place, put away shoulders, the blank, little face, and any other crook that wanna break ill, he got a problem, Dick Tracy's the bill, he found a kid that they call Tracy J-R, a good kid, the boy's gonna go far, Sam Catchem is another on the right side, but if you're not then fool, you better run and hide from Dick Tracy. Not politicians, not union bosses, not racketeers, not the treachery of his fellow serpents, not the heady aroma of power lust would be enough to undo this monolith of evil. Nothing but Dick Tracy, whose name had come up in regard to the office of police chief on the south side. Tracy had handled the likes of Caprice before, and seen the hideous rictus of other hoodlums end up behind bars. But here was a king whose calling card was widowhood, and a brutal river of scarlet that drained itself in the city sewer. Dick Tracy is coming to your town soon, wiping out all the mugs and the goons. So if you're wrong, you better move to some other place. I say the hell out his face, cause he's no joke when it comes to crime, he goes for broke. Even if the pistol smoke, he gets the job done, the man don't run. Talk about bad, Dick Tracy's the one. Untouchable, the unstoppable. Tracy's on a tape. That's impossible. Super cop, there's no crook friend. Dick Tracy's in the streets again. again. He would create a reign of terror and a flow of blood that would not be staunched by anything but Dick Tracy and the nation's boldest crime busters. Ha, ha, ha. The gangsters laughed at headlines that promised a head-on war from the Attorney General's office. Cackles were heard again in mafia backpilers at the mention of Attorney General Fletcher's campaign for the mayoral office. A campaign that Caprice and his underbosses, flat top, prune face, influence, and mumbles would conspire to bring to an abrupt halt and give the would-be office holder an involuntary dirt nap. Focus of the tentacles of Caprice and his hideous family was gambling. The glamorous shibboleths that kept the masses hostage to a dream. And in eternal slavery to the hope that this week, this month, their lucky number would come up. A hope that somehow never materialized. Roulette, Kraps, Blackjack, Pino, the ponies and the puppies were all raised and pulled like the strings of a marionette with a shining visage by Caprice and his allies. The city with its hopeless masses hooked like dope fiends on the game of the moment waltzed to the gangsters too. And he kept a parade of corrupt officials on the payroll to ensure that the waltz played on. One who dared contradict him was club owner Lips Manless, proprietor of the club Ritz. Big boy Caprice wanted in. Manless wouldn't yield. Lips was soon separated from the living in a lavish funeral, and Caprice took over the club Ritz. And with it came Manless's former mall. The song would come here to stare, Breathless Mahoney. Breathless would not be allowed to mourn long, for the party would go on every night, as it always did. Would Tracy drop by to bring it to a halt? When would gunfire rival the popping of champagne corks? But wherever Caprice roamed, blood would find him. Sooner or later, sooner or later, sooner or later, sooner or later, sooner or later.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.